VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, July the 24th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get off to a flying start. That requires your participation. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 590 vocm which is 86 26. So coming off another pretty stellar weekend now, there were certain parts of the province that experienced some pretty intense rain. We'll get to that in a second. But I don't know how much attention you pay to your social media feeds. I pay less and less attention as the days and weeks and months and years go by. But we've all been absolutely bombarded with movie thrillers and trailers, pardon me. And fair enough. You know, someone was asking me why we didn't talk about the child trafficking film, The uh, Sound of Freedom, and we can if you like. And then this past weekend, I'm kind of glad it's over because whatever became Barbenheimer, I mean, talk about just some crafty marketing. So talk about the polar opposites of genres, the Barbie movie and Oppenheimer. So I didn't see either. I kind of paid attention to the British Open Championship and a bit of baseball over the weekend. But talk about box office smash over the weekend. So good old Barbie, which I don't plan on seeing. I mean, it looks like a fun movie for those who are interested. But anyway, Barbie, uh, $155 million in U.S. ticket sales from their 4,243 locations. Oppenheim came in at over $80 million. It's the first time in movie history, well, I guess in the documented movie history, that the film opened with over $100 million and another one opened with over $80 million. Pretty wild stuff. Fourth biggest weekend box office in history. So anyway, Barbie and Oppenheimer. All right. Another thing we're bombarded with, and we've had some people pick up on this one in the uh, weeks past. But now that the country has allowed single-game betting, sitting down to watch a baseball game gets a little bit infuriating with the betting ads. Look, fair enough if you drop a dime here or there trying to bet on if Vladdy hits a home run or there's a first-inning strikeout or whatever it is involved. I don't have the app. I haven't done it, even though I was in a golf pool over the weekend. But the betting ads are just absolutely nonstop. And I did take a couple minutes yesterday because I think it's a cool sight to see the cyclists come down the Champs-Élysées to wrap up the Tour de France. On this date in 2005, now disgraced American Lance Armstrong won his seventh record-setting seventh Tour de France nine years after he was diagnosed with testicular cancer. So this guy, Jonas Vindegaard, he's won his second consecutive tour. Talk about superhuman stuff. The tour actually begins in Bilbao, Spain. And of course, as mentioned, wraps up in Paris, come down the Champs-Élysées. 21 stages, and you know the distance they race? 3,405.6 kilometers. Many of those kilometers of which, of course, are in the mountains, so unbelievable. And we did see some pretty heavy rain forecasted for the southwest coast of the island. It wasn't as intense as was forecast, which is good news. It did indeed leave behind some some damage and if you're on that part if you're in that part of the province you can absolutely join us and tell us what you're seeing this morning and of course many of us would have friends and possibly family living in nova scotia so coming off some brutal wildfires now with the torrential rains and the consequential flooding just horrific uh, visuals coming from that province and you heard brian mador mention it in the newscast still searching for some four people missing in the west hans region including two children as their vehicle became submerged so anyway, it looks like the province is offering some help wherever we can in the province of Nova Scotia, but those visuals are absolutely unbelievable. Okay, let's move on. You know I like talking about food. So 
you know, we have talked many times about the fact that per capita, the fewest farms in the country here in the province, we've lost an exorbitant amount of farms, number of farms over the past decades. When people are looking at the prices in the grocery store and think, well, maybe, just maybe, do a little bit more producing my own food, and whether it be livestock, chickens or otherwise, and backyard farming, homesteading, what have you, and the hope, you know, the promises we have indeed achieved the goal of doubling commercial food production over the last five years, okay. But there's a antiquated piece of legislation that has been the guiding principle, uh, principle both for the provincial legislation and for municipalities, but it dates back to 1947. It's the 1947 Agriculture Act of the UK. It's time we up our game. Now, the province says that municipalities have the wherewithal to adjust their own municipal bylaws to accommodate more and more applications for said activity. And they're creating a guiding document to aid municipalities taking that on. It's a good thing because more and more people are really becoming quite interested because we all know the unbelievably stubborn food inflation numbers. And the biggest problem there is there's not really an end in sight. And when prices go up to the level that they have, it's hard to envision how they come back to, say, for instance, pre-pandemic levels. But So we can talk about food security, even on the commercial level with farming, beyond backyard and homesteading. Now, this is an extremely difficult read, important conversation, though, yet to be had about food insecurity. There are some 7 million Canadians, including almost 2 million children, who live in a food insecure household. We can talk about what government intervention looks like on that front, but this is a new peer-reviewed study published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, talking about the impact of food insecurity, particularly amongst children, and what it means for young people's mental health. We all obviously will understand that there'll be a level of anxiety and concern when you have a food insecure household, especially if you're having a hard time choosing between paying your bills and feeding your children properly. But here are some of the issues that have, they've learned when examining some 3,200 children and their food insecure possibilities. Out of the 3,200, 5,200 were living in a food insecure household. Here are some of the results. Kids living with a food insecurity access medical services for mental health or substance use disorders 55% more than those who had access to an appropriate diet. It goes on to say that the uh, greater prevalence of emergency department visits and hospital admissions, 74% more compared to those who were food secure. So as we talk about what it would cost for government intervention, because again, government in a distinct failure in governance has relied and allowed Canadians to rely on food banks. A one-time band-aid has become a real feature for many people's day-to-day -day reality. If we know, and we do, that a night in the hospital or interaction with emergency room visits is an extremely costly venture, and if many of those visits and or admissions are a result of food insecurity, something has to give. We could talk about government aims to double commercial food production and freeing up some 64,000 hectares of uh, crown land for farming operations in the province, but across the country, modern day, First World Canada, in 2023, 7 million Canadians, including 2 million children, are food insecure, relying on a food bank. And we just gave you the numbers, what it looks like for mental health issues, which could be a lifelong concern. What it means for substance use, it could be a lifelong concern and or death spiral. Then we talk about hospital admissions and ER visits. If we can draw straight lines, which is what is insinuated by this particular peer-reviewed report in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, 
then it's really time that more happens. We talk about devastation in Nova Scotia and the aftermath of Fiona and other natural disasters and the mobilization of governments and the deeming of them to be crisis, yet in food insecurity, not so much. But that should be a real wake-up when we have the mental health field chiming in on what food insecurity means. So anyway, that, that's, that report is really difficult to read. On that front, a little bit of a happier note in the food world. Saturday uh, represented 15 years of the St. John's Farmer's Market, which is always a real nice visit and a great atmosphere, so that's a pretty good one. Speaking of healthcare, I think it's worth for every media outlet across the country, regardless of the medium, to keep bringing up this story about the Canadian-born, foreign-trained doctor and the 17th-month battle that ensued to get accreditation in the country. Why do I think it's important? Not only because we have a healthcare professional shortage, but because of media coverage. After almost 17 months, it took only two days for the final accreditation to take place. Why? Media pressure, and then public pressure. So again, just to recap, a lady born in this country, her mother is actually a family doctor in Hamilton, Ontario. She was trained in, working in Australia for 10 years with a blemish-free record, applying for accreditation to the, 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 the Medical Council of Canada and, of course, the Provincial College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario, the, the regulatory body, as you all know. So on and on and on it went. It actually came to a point where she left her husband and her children in Canada to return to Australia to keep her license valid. So, as we said last week, it's time for these regulatory bodies not to just throw caution to the side and bring in everybody, give everyone a license to practice medicine in whatever discipline, but come on. If it took two days to turn it around after this was a national media story, then obviously that type of pressure will hopefully allow these regulatory bodies to open their eyes and be a little bit more expedient and uh, move forward a little quicker to deal with some of the gross inefficiencies that are part of Canada's licensing system. So if it made a difference then, it can hopefully make a difference now because there's an untold number of the exact same story and the exact same number of doc pardon me, the same story for who knows how many doctors and or other healthcare professionals that are just thrown their hands up and said, it's enough is enough. Between the time and the money and the aggravation, they've given up on trying to make Canada their home and practicing medicine for whatever form or fashion. You want to take it on? Let's go. All right. This was always going to be the outcome. When we talk about government picking winners and losers, in essence picking winners and losers, and in this case between the fishery and the oil industry, it was always going to be the case that when the Hercules uh, drill rig was seen bobbing off so out the southern shore, made its way out into the Jean d'Arc Basin, prime fishing grounds, then of course the FFAW would have a problem with it. They say they were given very little heads up. The CNLOPB, the regula regulator in that world, says that ExxonMobil is in full compliance. So there's always going to be that. When we talk about marine protected areas, what activities are allowed in, then there's going to be a long-running problem here. Because even when we talked about it a few months ago, and the federal minister said, you know, even if accommodations need to be made for activity regarding oil and gas, and still no conversation regarding advancing the cause for the fishing industry and the harvesters, and this year comes with an additional layer of frustration given what the crab seasons look like. A six-week tie-up and the racket overprice, and this 
butting of heads will absolutely continue. Even though the CNLOPB says they're in full compliance, that's not going to sit well with fish harvesters and or the representative body. And on that front, it's been about a month since we were told that shrimp will be selling for some 92 cents a pound, but still no written decision. So anywhere in the fishing industry, mackerel or golf cod or whatever you like to take on, we're happy to do exactly that. And for those of you who are probably much more in the know, where are we in the crab season? What percentage of the total allowable catch has been landed? Does it look like we're going to get there to land the entirety of the, what is it, 54,000 tons of shrimp that was, or pardon me, of crab that was allocated for this go around? All right, a couple of quickies on the national front. So it looks like cabinet ministers have been uh, called back to Ottawa, Ottawa for some meetings today and tomorrow. There's the possibility, very likely, of a cabinet shuffle coming up as early as Wednesday of this week. Lots of cabinet ministers who have made news and headlines, given some of their sidesteps, missteps, errors, and foolishness. We'll see what becomes of it. But one of the issues that I think Push has arrived at shoved very clearly is in the issue regarding foreign interference in the past elections. People talk about 19 and 21, but it's been happening for a long time. Now, there's been a retired RCMP officer charged with foreign interference. So the investigation was launched some while back, and this was in an effort to help the People's Republic of China to target a specific individual. We don't know who that person is or what nationality they are, but when you have a retired RCMP officer with the the contacts and the understanding of the intelligence arena, now that we've seen this charge, it's going to be harder and harder for the federal government, the prime minister uh, specifically, to not advance the conversation about next steps into the whole investigation into foreign interference. And it needn't just be about China. It should be about every bad actor out there who is trying to unduly influence our free and fair elections. But now that this arrest or charge has been laid, that can be a bigger part of the story. And just a good one before we get to the break and to your calls. How are we doing on the telephone this morning there, David? All right. Very quickly, I want to say good morning and congratulations to a gentleman named Bill Coltis. 75 years of age, a known storyteller. And so at the age of 71, he enrolled at Memorial University to do a writing course. His tutor, or pardon me, his teacher, I guess, or instructor is Lisa Moore. I mean, pretty lucky there. So he was encouraged to advance it even further. He submitted a couple of uh, his writings to like the Newfoundland Quarterly and just bounced another few around, was encouraged then and or challenged to take it to the next level and to write a novel, which he's done. Revenge Finds a Home is a murder mystery that he has published now at the age of 75, his very first novel. I think I'm going to give it a read, just for the sake. And congratulations, Bill Coltis. Never too old to do uh, something like a first of producing writing and having your first novel published, which was published by Flanker, Flanker Press. All right, we're on Twitter. That's a weird site. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline.vocm.com. But let's have a great show, including your call right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Good morning, Tiffany. You're on the air. Hi, how are you? Doing okay this morning. How about you? I'm all right. I'm still going. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm calling. You were just talking about regulatory boards. Um, and unfortunately, I've learned over the last three years that these regulatory boards are not mandated to work on empathy. And I'm just calling about, I don't know if you heard about my house on Summer Street. It was in CBC in 2022. I'm still in the middle of the struggle trying to find a solution sort of desperately every day for the last three years. Um, and I feel like the city, the council has me trapped in this um, stress which is overwhelming. Um, Just remind me of the story. So is this the home that was once a garage and 
Anonymous Trust? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Remind yeah, the so listeners, though, because not everyone might remember exactly what we're talking about. Oh, totally, yeah. So I bought a house. I thought I'd finally made it. I bought something affordable because I was having trouble affording rent and finally got this house, had a wonderful dinner with my friends, thought I'd made it, you know, um... I was a, well, I still am a single, like, small business owner, female, um, so it was really hard to get a house, and then to finally have the house was great, um, running my little, like, making my little stuff for my store downtown in it, but uh, soon it became infested with rats, and I lay on my stomach across the front of the house, there was a massive garage door hole, and I said, this isn't right. So I had to get someone hired to seal up the perimeter, realizing it wasn't a typical construction. And then the orkin, well, the pest control guy found the burn when I cut a hole for him. The entire structure is completely burnt. I pulled the archives. I started down a road of doing massive research and calling everybody. So the complete frame is burnt completely. There was a fire in before 1985. Um, it used to be a car garage the neville brothers used to run some sort of a car fixer fixing shop there was a fire apparently the guy left and sold the house to somebody who then applied for a construction permit and finally got it but the city never went back to ever inspect it they never gave it an occupancy permit over the years it changed hands um the recent seller sold it to me for I thought it was overpriced. It was one sixty-eight thousand, little tiny, little seven hundred eighty-three square foot house. Um, but it had no occupancy permit and was severely burnt. So now, through the struggles with the city, it's deemed it needs to be torn down. Um, I can't get the loan to tear it down and then still be able to pay rent carrying that sort of debt. Um, I'm trying to come up with the money to tear it down. I just I wish it would fall down. Um, I've been not living in the house for a year just because it's severely burnt and it was stressful to live in and remember every day what happened. But I'm still in the struggle and still trying to get out. Um, last week, I sent an email to the city because through the process of trying to get the permit to tear the house down. Um, I'm just asking if there's any of the costs that can be reduced in order for me to try to afford this and make it happen. Uh, my plan is to apply for a mortgage to rebuild, like a builder's mortgage. Um, because I can't afford anything on the market now. Um, I don't know what to do. Uh, and I just, I want people to know, too, it's very easy. You can do everything right in buying a house. I followed all the rules. I had an inspector. He was the top-rated person on Google. He had good reviews. He missed a lot of things. There's no regulatory board for inspectors. And they do not check for an occupancy permit as part of the sales process. So the city gave me a compliance letter, which suggests to me the house complied. It doesn't comply. It has no occupancy permit. It's even in the city's writing. You cannot buy a house with no occupancy permit. It's illegal to live in it and own it. So I don't know how they can give what's called a compliance letter for the sale to the lawyer, but it actually does not comply. So now when you buy a house, you then are buying the issues if it has no occupancy permit. And a lot of people have come forward since the CDC story telling me about their own issues with buying houses with occupancy. You're the one who has to foot the bill to fix all the issues. Unfortunately for me, I got to tear it down and rebuild. Um, my home insurance was revoked, so if anyone squats in there, I'm in big trouble um, if they get hurt. Uh, so I carry this stress every day. Um, every day I'm in a frantic sort of research um, I'm trying to get out of this. I'm trying to figure it out. I don't know if anyone knows anything or has any advice for me. I don't um, I don't know what to do. Um, it's affected my health. Last three years, it's affected my life. 
I don't really feel like I'm living. I'm just sort of in survival mode. So um, I'm not sure what, what to be at. But just you were talking about regulatory boards, and they do not work on empathy. They will pass the buck. Um, my lawyer said I can't afford litigation. The city knows I can't afford litigation. Uh, they could blame past groups of counsel for the m- mistakes that were made over the years. In 2013, they raised the property taxes from 60000 which had been for years and years and years, to 139000 So why did the city raise the taxes by 79000 in one year for a little tiny house? I'm not sure, but that mistake alone set us up and the realtors up to think it was actually a house to sell it to me for what they sold it to me for. Whereas if it was still worth $60,000, you would go, oh, this probably isn't a house. We probably can't sell this. So there's a lot of questions I have. There's a lot there. Uh, Talking about regulatory bodies, the major problem inside your stories, of which there are many, is the lack of a regulatory body for home inspectors. There's no licensing. There's no accreditation. You can just call yourself a home inspector and off to the races. We rely on, you know, referrals and word of mouth as to who is trustworthy, who knows what they're doing, who knows what they're talking about. But the unfortunate reality is someone might have had a good experience with a quote-unquote home inspector, but then... And the next yep. person that they deal with, in this case you, they completely yep. drop the ball. And then yeah. add to that, like for starters, we got to get a regulatory body for home inspectors. You know, not to just add layers of bureaucracy, but this is for the buyer's protection, obviously, and the seller's yeah. protection. But to be afforded a compliance letter, look, when you have an occupancy permit, there's all these differences between commercial applications and human habitation. They are different permits altogether. So how yep. could have anyone uh, produced a compliance letter without an occupancy permit. Like, uh, one can't go without the other. To comply. Yeah, to comply. It did not comply. It's illegal to sell something or to own something without an occupancy permit. It does not comply. So change the name of the document at least. Educate people so they know that you need to make sure this has an occupancy permit or you're going to be stuck footing the bill trying to get out of this mess after you've bought it. Like, this is my first time home. It was supposed to be my forever home. I'm supposed to be paying it off so I have a place to live as a small business owner when I want to retire because it's hard for small businesses as it is. Single lady, I'm on one income. So, you know, it's it's frustrating to do everything right and to still be stuck in this mess, which I am still trying to figure out how to get out of. It's a terrible situation. I really hate to hear the, what you're going through over the course of the last three years. Everybody dropped the ball here. Everybody but you. And you're yeah, the one who's carrying in the load. And it can happen to anybody. It sure. can happen to anybody out there buying a house. Please look and make sure it has an occupancy permit yourself because a lawyer in the real estate transaction is not going to do it. And they actually dropped me after and said, sorry, it's now a conflict of interest. We can't help you out of this mess. So find it yourself. Pull the archives yourself from the city. Make sure it's actually a house because it's so easy to get away with fraud when selling a house. So easy. And the only recourse is $45,000 retainer to take it to court, and they're going to drag you through. So, like, I don't know. Yep. I wouldn't know where to point you because it sounds like you've exhausted all the potential avenues to resolve this. Oh, yeah. So much. But if anybody else knows, whether it be any of my friends in the real estate business who can be very (laughs) helpful and certainly understand the industry and or someone who's an inspector or a lawyer, whoever has some idea what we can do to help and to give you some direction anyway, give you some guidance or advice. If they give it to me, Tiffany, I'd be more than happy to pass it along because this is a very frustrating scenario. 
It is. I do have a GoFundMe up, and I've sort of been writing over the years the progress report. I, I haven't, it hasn't gained much traction lately, but and nor do I expect like people to have to help me out financially out of this. But advice, information, if you want to read the step by step, there is a GoFundMe. And I think it's called like Tiffany. Need, Tiffany Elton needs help with her house or something, but the link's probably in the CBC, old CBC story. I'm not sure, but I'll have a look forward yeah. during the break. Yeah, just send me messages. You can send messages through there. Tell me everything, and I'm going to listen to the show all week and see if anyone else calls in with any related information. I hope someone does exactly that, and they're more than welcome yeah. to join us. What if I ever get anything that I think will be of any help at all, Tiffany? I'll drop you a note. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. Take good yeah. care. Bye bye. Have a good day. Thank you. you. Too. Bye. Man, I mean, well, how does that stuff happen? But right off the bat, look, the biggest purchase most of us will ever make in our lifetime is to buy a home. Now, some big muckety mucks have, might have much bigger investments that dwarf buying a single, uh, per, a single family dwelling. But 99% of us, that's it. And so if we rely on a home inspector, because just trying to get out in front to see whether or not something is worth your investment dollar, worth trying to buy to live in, whether you can afford whatever repairs are required based on the advice coming from a home inspector, but the home inspector might not know what he or she is talking about. And there's no license. So I could just get a business card. I'd just go down to quick print and say, Paul, print me out 500 calling myself a home inspector. And then I'm a home inspector. There's got to be a better way than that. Uh, let's keep going. Line number two. RJ, you're on the air. Good day. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay, thanks. How about you? Uh, struggle on air with, uh, with the health care, the mental health. Uh, my mother-in-law have been six since 84 and uh my wife now in the past three months we've been trying to get her the proper help because she has uh mental issues um she's currently in the waterford right now we sent her in saturday uh they they brought her in and uh, after 12 o'clock saturday night and decided that they were going to discharge her at 10 o'clock Sunday morning, uh, knowing that you know she, she's mentally ill, her uh, her medications are maxed out and are not working, or they're too much, and they're they're trying to send her home for the family to try and deal with her adjustments out of her medications, which I believe is totally out of whack because. Uh, my my wife has been off work for the last three months trying to deal with it. Uh, they expected us to come in to, to pick her up from St. John's, and we live like three and a half, four hours away. Uh, so I haven't said that with my wife being off work. You know, uh, <laughs> funds are not uh, not expendable, we'll say. And then she, she's after pleaded and begged to to stay to get help that she doesn't feel safe to come home and they're still trying to discharge her and it's just so frustrating with the mental health system but you know pe- people deserve their their professional help okay and just so i understand her, rj the concern here is that she's been getting the help even though there might be a problem with her with her meds but now they're set to discharge her she doesn't feel safe to be discharged is that what you said Yes. Okay. And she's, you know, I mean, like she's been crying to them, saying that she didn't feel safe to come home, and 
the last four times that she's been in to try to get her to like we've been fought to try to get her to stay there like to for the doctors to understand that we're not capable of managing her meds and and then her sickness would you know i mean like <laughs> I, I i i don't know where to turn to or who to call for help to try to get the doctors to keep her there uh, it's just so frustrating because the mental health has been talked about a lot, but it doesn't seem like there's anything happening to improve it. So, RJ, what does it mean that she doesn't feel safe to be discharged? She thinks that she's in, at risk of hurting herself, or what does that mean? Yes, and, uh, she, she has a schizoaffective disorder, and this is something that's been you know legally diagnosed that, as her sickness. And her, uh, like I said, her medications. I guess we're. I don't know if they're. I don't know if they're too too much, or if it's not enough, or if it needs to be changed. Like she's hearing voices. The devil's talking to her, tell her to do bad things, and the the healthcare professionals are saying, "Oh, she's just doing it for attention." This lady's been sick since '84. Right? As you know, she's not doing it for attention. If that was the case. And ever since '84, then obviously she's not sick, right? We've been told that she doesn't have a, a mental illness since the last three months. One of the uh, psychiatrists had, had said that to us that she's not sick; she's just doing it for attention. And like, how can you tell us that when since '84 she's been diagnosed with a mental health? Issue. So, what's your plan, her plan for the pending discharge? Um, we don't know. We're, we're denying, as of right now, I don't know if I can deny her her discharge so that they can keep her, or like they were going to keep her in the emergency at the Waterford. I, I, like, is that even legal to keep her in emergency because we couldn't afford to go pick her up because they're waiting for an ambulance to send her home at? <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure uh, about that, but you know, I, it's it's strange that if there's been a formal diagnosis that is now being rejected by another mental health professional, saying that it's simply attention seeking versus an actual illness. So, what was the diagnosis? Schizo. Um, uh, just one second. I have to ask my wife here again. No, that's that's okay. So an official diagnosis has gone by the wayside. That's a curious turn of events. It's a schizoaffective disorder is what okay. it's called. So, like I said, uh, it's just so frustrating because she comes home. Um, like my wife works, her uh, her younger sibling he works, and and we're torn. Well, we all work, but uh, okay, that's kind of distracting the two of us, I think. Uh, anything else you want to tell us this morning? Well, we wish everyone the best of luck upon discharge. Well, they're actually that's her on the phone right now. She's crying, don't want to come home because they're going to discharge her. <laughs> well, I'll let you deal with that much more importantly than dealing with me, and I wish you good luck. Thanks, RJ. Uh, is there anybody that you should suggest that I can call to? forward 
somewhere else? Like you're, uh, I, I don't you know. Just, I mean, there's, you know, some of the avenues that are available to file complaints or to pose questions or what have you, they don't seem to be a very expedient. So if this is an immediate concern, I wouldn't know. If this was a long-running issue, maybe simply a client relations with the health authority, but that's not going to do anything for a pending discharge that might be happening today or tomorrow. So I'm not entirely sure where to put you or to point you, I pardon me. But if anyone does know and has dealt with similar issues, they can call Dave Williams. We'll pass it along. Perfect. I appreciate it very much. Okay. And if there's anything that comes about, I don't know if you want to take my number. Or... We have it. Okay. Yeah. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, sir. Okay, RJ. You're welcome. Take care. Yeah, the, for immediate concerns like that, this, you know, when we're talking about governments, regardless of its health authorities or otherwise, not necessarily renowned for moving quickly. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. As you know, someone pointed out via email that I'm not on Twitter. I'm on X. Yeah, so there's apparently some rebranding of that social media platform from Twitter to calling it X, and it is right there in the top left corner. I mean, talk about a silly way forward. You know, what turned into a verb to tweet, to retweet, now to rebrand it to something innocuous like X. Just amazing stuff what's going on with that site. Let's go to line number three. Annie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. I haven't been talking to you in a long time. It has been a while. Welcome back. Yes, thank you. Um, now I'm going to approach the conversation this way. I don't know if you remember or not, uh, but anybody that knows me knows that I'm a breast cancer survivor. Mm-hmm. And I'm in my 21st year of being a breast cancer survivor. Terrific. Now, walking through breast cancer wasn't an easy thing to do, but, you know, when I heard the words, there were things that I wanted to do in my life, you know, uh, will say my bucket list. So, <laughs> Patty, over the pandemic, you're familiar with uh, the stumpkins that I made. Uh, yep. Yeah, okay. So I continued to, to do art, and... Um, I'll put it to you this way. There were things that I wanted to do in my life, and right now I'm sort of living a dream because I didn't know I was going to get the opportunity. You know, after hearing the words cancer, I didn't know if I was going to get the opportunity to do things that I wanted to do. And I've accomplished over the last year or so some things that uh, sort of unbelievable to myself. Um way back in my early years even before the breast cancer i used to say at some point in my life i'm going to make little children's books so i've been using like the stumpkin characters and writing up little books now these are legacy pat patty for my grandchildren maybe the great grandchildren i've written up four uh hilarious things like where I've put them into scenes outdoors with photography and just done them and so it's like for me it's living a dream and outside of that I've done a line of mugs I've been continuing to do art I mean art is quite therapeutic last year like I mean I investigated given that I was at this and 
I suppose, surprising myself that I had a bit of creativity that I was unaware of uh, that lived inside myself, I guess. Um, I entered into, like, uh, one of the art programs. So there's different ways, like, that people that got this creativity with art that can avail of things that the province offers. So I had the experience of uh, doing out an application and submitting some stuff to provincial art program which was quite thrilling for me and um, yeah that's basically I wanted to touch base would you let you know what I've been doing living a dream really I mean I'm in my 21st year I can certainly call myself a, a true survivor in every way of breast cancer so I wanted to put that positive message out there I'm glad you did I mean art therapy is a real thing I mean, there's accredited professionals who are art therapists that have also, I think, minimum requirements to be a registered art therapist in the country, minimum of a master's level diploma, uh, master's degree in therapy to actually get the accreditation. You need hundreds of hours of supervised uh, practicums to be uh, actually registered. There's a code of ethics. They have liability insurance. So when people think, well, art is a distraction, art is just a way to self-explore or to self-express, when in fact there's a real discipline for arts therapists, which I didn't know. I think we spoke to someone from the Canadian Arts Therapy uh, Association on the show one time. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of people find uh, a lot of comfort inside the arts. Whatever it is, either producing or consuming, whatever form of art can be very therapeutic. Yes. No question. Uh, right now, like, I'm sitting, like, I got me on home here. And right now, I'm talking to you, I'm sitting. I got a, I got a table here that I, I done, one thing that I done was um, I done a lot of this during the pandemic. Uh, I got a rock village sitting on my table here now, little tiny like miniature rocks all done up like houses. They're cut, you can find them in the environment, cut them, paint them up, and it looks like little houses. And with the pieces, now the sidewalks that goes with that that I found on different beaches, and there's a village there. <laughs> Then I done it with uh, my husband put uh, a piece on the shed in the spring and I picked up pieces of two before, say, Patty, uh, and made streets. I got one here called Chinook Street. I got another one here. There's an old western street. There's a Christmas street. And they're done with bits and pieces of board with windows and doors, like little houses, peak roofs, flat roofs, you name it. It's all here. Like, my, my basement is almost like different little towns. <laughs> Whatever makes you happy, Annie. And I'm sure some of the things you've done for your grandchildren or great-grandchildren, and even just out in, uh, in nature, that, as you've described, where you put some of your pieces of art, I'm sure you put a smile on lots of faces, Annie. And I appreciate you making time for us. I'll give you the last word. Go ahead. Oh, that's it. I just wanted okay. to touch base with you and, and, and let you know what I've been doing. And, like, I haven't spoke to you and let you basically know I'm still alive. I'm glad to hear it. It's always nice to hear from you. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Annie. Take care. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, you know, when people are looking for counseling or a way to escape or a way to self-explore or to self-express, whatever the case may be, it does feel like people, you know, a couple of things. People think about the arts and talk about the arts as simply a hobby, when for many, many people, certainly in this province, it's a profession. But in the world of soothing and options for, whether it be formal counseling and or a way to just give yourself your mind a break, you know, even if we just say it as 
casual as an active mind and looking for a way to just calm yourself and I'm one of those people my brain is racing a million miles an hour all day and unfortunately sometimes all night so little opportunities for art to be the release or the relief probably works for a lot of people and yes I'm pretty sure we spoke with someone from the Canadian Art Therapy Association it's a real thing they're not just you know giving classes in arts they are formalizing ways inside a clinical practicum for art to be your therapy all right let's go ahead and take a break when we come back we'll speak with you on a topic uh, that is entirely up to you don't go away welcome back to the program let us go where line number one good morning Austin you're on the air good morning Patty morning to you how are you doing? That's kind. How about you? First time ever calling the open line. Welcome to the show. Yeah, I understand you're going to Toronto to see the Blue Jays. Yeah, I'm going to visit my sister, and one of the uh, things we are going to do is kind of catch some Jays games, yeah. That's great. That's great. You're going to see a wonderful team. Well, hopefully going to see two because, well, I'm not a wonderful team, but a wonderful player. Hopefully, Otani is still an angel when we get there. So we're going to go see the angels. And then here comes Baltimore, of course, number one. There and now in the go. leader. Now you're going to see a team. They look pretty stout. I mean, what are they, 7-3 in their last 10 now, leading the they American took League East? They out, I tell you. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, of course, I've been following Tampa. Uh, I like the Blue Jays. But uh, they'll never compare to the Baltimore Orioles, in my mind. So you, you have to be a long-time Orioles fan to say I, that. I was shaking hands with Boog Powell. Cool. Yeah. And uh, uh, Jim Palmer, the lower Orioles had the last four 20-game winners the one year. They've won the World Series several times. And they're an up-and-coming team. So when anybody cheers for them, I, I like the Blue Jays. I watch their games. But I do watch every single Baltimore Oriole game. Do you? And, and to the love of my life, uh, I, I'm a hockey fan. I'm an all-sports team uh, fan. But the Baltimore Orioles are my first love. Listen, I've fair chased, enough. I've chased them all over North America. Anaheim, Philadelphia, where you name it, I've seen them. Well, they've got one of the coolest stadiums in the bigs, what you can tell from television anyway, Camden Yards. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm lucky enough that I'm paying uh, extra money to see all their games. And uh, I just loved them. And, and uh, then when they're finished, I turn on the, turn on the Blue Jays. <laughs> so I hope you enjoy the... Uh, the sight of the Jays playing the Baltimore Orioles. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So you must have favorites of all time. I know you mentioned Palmer, of course, was a great Hall of Famer. Uh, Cal Ripken Jr., for everyone, jumps right off the page when we're talking about all-time great Orioles. Uh, Ripken Jr. got to be got to be my favorite. Yeah, 20 years with the uh, with the team and, of course, the Iron Man in baseball. Brooks Robinson was a, a pretty great oh, Oriole, to say yeah. the very least. Frank Robinson gonna, played there I'm for a while. Tell you. Yeah. Yeah, they're they they're a great team, and they really make my day, I tell you that. I'm retired from teaching, and uh, I've uh, been down there in, in old Memorial Stadium and, and saw them play, shook hands with the, the big man himself on first base. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I'll give you a call so, and, and wish you all the best when you go and see the Orioles play the Blue Jays. I appreciate it. Also, when you say you shook the hand of the big man on first base, is that Eddie Murray? No, no, Boog. Oh, Boog, Boog Powell. Fair enough. You know your stuff, buddy. Well, I, I remember Eddie Murray, of course. He's another Hall of Fame legend. There you go. There's there you an go. overlap between the Jays and the Orioles as well. Because, yeah. of course, now Vladdy Guerrero Jr. on a bit of a hot streak here in the last little bit. His yeah. father, Guerrero, played for Baltimore one season, didn't he? They finished off a nice game last night, I was watching. Uh, yeah, about time they won. Seattle, right? Yeah, 4-3. Good win. Yeah, good win, yeah. Nice talking to you, and I think you're, you should really be as as educated and as you are you should be into another profession politics <laughs> well i don't know about that bite you're uh, talking austin let's just stick to sports <laughs> <laughs> okay i'm happy with that good to have as you on the show as long as the orioles are in first place in the east yeah i mean the Rays started 13 and 0 now all of a sudden they can't pick up a win and the orioles just they, dropped they, them Yes, I mean, the Rays were up 14 or 15 games. Yeah, that's right. But then again, the Orioles might do the same thing in the last half. Well, we'll see. They're two games ahead of the Rays now, six and a half ahead of the Jays, if I remember uh, correctly after having a look at it last night. The Red Sox and the Yankees coming up the rear. Yeah, so you never know what's going to happen. But anyway, they're my first love, and uh, the old Leafs, I don't know. I, I, I try to cheer for them, but... They're stuck with money problems, so. Yeah, they got problems. Yeah, they got problems. Good to have you on. Uh, yeah, uh, I was going to mention that sure. uh, Zach Dean's father died, right? Oh, Bob? Bob, yeah. When did that happen? Uh, over the weekend. Oh, no, I'm sorry to hear uh, that. I taught school in Boutwood, right? And, yeah. Uh, yeah, one of my friends. Fine hockey player in his own right. Yeah, and Bob was a, f- a fine hockey player. Well, I'm really sorry to hear that. I'm sure tough for the entire family. Pretty sure yeah. we had him on this show talking about Zach uh, during the World Juniors and, you know, talking uh, about him Zach playing in the o- St. Ontario. Louis, didn't he? He did. He got traded from Vegas to St. Louis, yeah. Yeah, right on, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, first time caller, but nice talking to you. Good to have you on. Uh, stay in touch. Okay, buddy. Thanks. All Take the care. best. Yeah. Enjoy the games. Thank you. Okay. Well, so, bye-bye. Yeah, there's a couple of, uh, well, uh, Roberto Alomar played in Baltimore as well as being the J and Vladdy Sr. had a season there I don't know if there's any other Palmiero yeah absolutely right uh, Tim Raines former Expo great Hall of Famer he played in Baltimore for a while yeah could be anyway that's good stuff there Frank Robinson Brooks Robinson I mean come on a few legends in the Orioles camp let's go to line number two Audrey you're on the air Hi, uh, I'd like to report a set of uh, losing a set of uh, motorhome keys. Okay. Uh, last week between Lumsden and Gambo. All right. So. Uh, if they're on a blue land yard. So you must have been driving your own vehicle and not the RV at the time, obviously. <laughs> no, I. It's my keys. My husband has a set also. Oh, I see. But, uh, I misplaced mine and no idea where they are. So I was just wondering if somebody picked them up, uh, if they could give VOCM a call, or I can give my number. Sure, go ahead. Okay, it's 709-466-0204. And Dave Williams has it on hand if anyone picks up the RV keys and a blue lanyard. Yes. How did you enjoy Lumsden? Loved it. It's beautiful, isn't it? The whole area was fabulous. 
fabulous, yes. Yeah, I mean, Cape Friels, Lums, and this. Uh, people, you know, don't realize the sandy beaches and the quality we have there here in Lumsden is just unbelievable. Oh, yes. And the Cape Friels is also, we it went is. out there. And, uh, oh, yeah, we'll be going back <laughs> for sure. And Lumsden, the water is nice and warm because it's so shallow, so far out. It's a lovely place to visit. Yes, fabulous. So would you have stayed at Windmill Bite? Is that the name of the park out there? I stayed at that one, yes. Okay, very good. Yeah. All right, if you find Audrey's keys, let us know so we can reunite the two. <laughs> exactly. Thank okay. you very much. You're welcome, Audrey. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Yeah, look, I mean, we can talk about wherever you like. Obviously, we just had a little conversation about the Baltimore Orioles. Now I'm thinking Orioles. One of the legends from Baltimore Oriole history, manager Earl Weaver, of course, right? Fiery Earl coming out kicking dirt all over the umpires repeatedly and notoriously. And then there's another Blue Jay overlap. Pretty sure Pat Gillick spent some time in Baltimore. Is that the case? Saw Gillick over the weekend in Cooperstown uh, for the Baseball Hall of Fame induction ceremony. And there was a couple of guys with Blue Jay ties. Obviously, Scott Rowland, who's more famous as a Philly third baseman. He went in the Hall of Fame. He started his career in Toronto. And, of course, uh, Fred McGriff, the crime dog, also went into the Hall of Fame over the weekend. He was a stellar Blue Jay, of course. Had the big bat with the big pop. All right. uh, uh, There's no one there, Dave. For whatever is quick is now lost. Anyway, baseball, always fun conversation. And, of course, look, I hear this all the time. And someone said in an email, you know, we didn't talk about X, Y, or Z. It's not necessarily up to me. It's entirely up to you what we talk about. But the one person did also ask the question is, what was the brief mention I made of a retired RCMP officer that has been charged and actually faced a judge in Quebec uh, over the weekend through video conference or last Friday uh, video conference? So his name is William Maysher, I think is how you pronounce it. He's 60 years of age. He worked for the RCMP in the country from 1985 to 2007. He's been working with a firm in Hong Kong, but he's being charged now with foreign foreign interference. And one of the portions of the news release from the RCMP in Montreal said, William Maysher, 60, allegedly used his knowledge and his extensive network of contacts in Canada to obtain intelligence or services to benefit the People's Republic of China. And you know that's only the tip of the iceberg. We still are hearing more and more revelations, and it's kind of hard to know exactly what to believe inside of these stories because some of the information is absolutely protected and classified. Then there are allegations that continue to fly regarding Han Dong in particular, former member of the Liberal Caucus, and he was one of the people identified. You remember that portion of the story. It was alleged that he was advising the consulate in Toronto about issues regarding Michael Korvig and Michael Spavor. And, of course, both detained in China. A lot of that was just retaliation for uh, us dealing with the Americans regarding the Huawei executive. But so now there's been an actual charge laid. So the comment that I made on that front is that now that we know at least this much has been alleged and a charge has been laid, the pressure is now starting to mount even more and more. Even though it seems to be, you know, very much a cyclical portion of the news, for one stretch of time there, it was the number one story in the country. It's kind of gone by the wayside a little bit. But now with the cabinet shuffle coming and the cabinet ministers are now in Ottawa for meetings, emergency or otherwise, now this charge, next steps in foreign interference has got to happen.
If the prime minister is going to say for once and for all, whether it be through Minister Dominic LeBlanc or him himself, we're not doing anything else. We've met the end of the road. The reports have been uh, submitted by formal special rapporteur, which is just a fancy term for person, David Johnson, and there's no more to be seen here, folks. When, in fact, I don't know what, what more we'll glean from a public inquiry, but it seems to me as an exercise in faith in democratic institutions, faith in the elections in the country, seems like that would be an absolute no-brainer to entertain. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic that is entirely up to you. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, talking about the uh, interesting conversation we have with Austin, who's a lifelong Baltimore Orioles fan, and he mentioned that Bob Dean has passed. And, of course, yes, Bob is Zach's grandfather, not his father. So that's true, and I appreciate that. I knew that. I don't know if uh, Austin said it was his father. I know it was his grandfather. Maybe I said it. But anyway, that's the deal. A couple of questions via email once again. Wish some emailers would uh, consider picking up the phone, but hey. So it was about the issue regarding farming. So we do indeed, per capita, have the fewest farms of any province anywhere in the country, and it's not serving us very well. There's lots of issues and hurdles, whether it be crown lands or otherwise, and we can dig in further on the crown lands issue because that remains to be a bee in the bonnet of many. You know, the story really started to gain traction when the Diamonds out in Catalina, after occupying their home on a piece of land for some 40-odd years, go to sell and find out that they're, uh, they're on crown land, and then the issue regarding the quieting of titles and the time and the costs associated with dealing with the Crown Lanes related matter. So if you look at the Land Use Atlas on the provincial government's website, it really does display a huge swath of land, including right here in and around the city, that is Crown. And you know full well some businesses or individuals or families are occupying homes on Crown lands. And then we've talked with uh, Adam, what's Adam's last name out in Bonavista, Bloomfield Estates? Uh, Adam Furlong, I'm pretty sure. And he's got a, a farming operation that he's unable to satisfy his actual business plan, a racket with the province over a little strip of Crown land. So that is a major issue. Oh, that's not what I started to talk about, though. But if you want to bring up the Crown lands issue, let's go. It's the issue regarding municipalities and some of the regulations or bylaws regarding the opportunity for backyard farming, homesteading, whatever the case may be. And I made mention of an old piece of legislation, which seems to be the guiding principle for provincial legislation and then consequently how the municipalities interpret it and the rules they put in place. And it's pre-Confederation. It's the 1947 Agriculture Act of the UK. So when we know, as the grocery shopper in my home, intimately familiar with the extraordinary prices that we're suffering, don't necessarily have the opportunity to expand my agricultural footprint in my little postage stamp of a piece of property in the city of St. John's, but so many other rural communities in particular. And, you know, I guess maybe some more urban settings, too, have opportunities to allow the residents to expand, whether it be for some chickens in the yard or a plot of land for root vegetables or whatever the case may be. We have a few pots with, like, lettuce and oregano and stuff in our backyard, but no real big large-scale operation because, as I mentioned, I live in a postage stamp piece of property in the east end of town. But when you have places where there's a big separation between homes, more and more opportunity for more and more animals and or to expand their agricultural setting, you know, we've just got to get people in tune here because the way municipal bylaws are written, 
if it has very clear what you can and cannot do, can and cannot have. But if we, like for instance, if I make a complaint and the bylaws are written the way they are, the municipalities and the councils have no choice but to enforce it. So it feels like, you know, they get a lot of the finger pointing of blame and frustration or anger aimed at them. But unless they rewrite the bylaws, they kind of have no choice when a complaint comes in the door. So their hands are tied, but in some essence, I suppose, they tied them themselves. So probably a really good idea for the province. They say they're creating a document that's going to be a guide to municipalities. But the opportunities have been talked about forever and a day. People are getting more and more interested in doing exactly that on their piece of property, backyard or otherwise. So we got to figure it out. There's no way that anything should be guided by a document from 1947 in 2023. On top of that, like for instance, there was a story, I'm pretty sure it was Paradise last week or the week before, regarding basketball nets out in the street. And there was complaints made, but because the legislation or the bylaws are written the way they are, the council had no choice but to enforce them the way they're written. Now, that one, you know, they talk about public safety and what have you, but there's lots of little quiet streets where a a basketball net or a hockey net on the road is not impeding anybody nor presenting unsafe conditions for anybody either. Anyway, parents aren't going to stick their kids out there on a busy four-lane highway to play hoops. So anyway, let's keep going. So line number two, Kevin, you're on the air. Hi, Kevin. You're on the air. Yep. Still there? Still here. There you go. Okay. Yep. Good morning, Pat. Morning uh, to you. Patty. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to call Patty. Uh, uh, oh, my. There about a month ago, I won a contest on your sister station, K-Rock. Okay. And uh, Candace Udo phoned me. And I phoned him one day during her 12 to 1 time spot there. And uh, if you left your name and a request, or you left the request in your name, well, you got you know, drew tickets then for... Uh, for a trip to Gander, come from away. Yep. Uh, uh, whole, uh, night in the hotel at Albatross, which is steel communications, of course. Right? And a $100 gift card for the gas. So anyway, we part, we partook in that Saturday evening in Gander. And I'm after phoning in the canvas down, left the message of her, I'm going to thank her for everything, and K-Rock, and then steel communications. But Patty, uh, uh, we were there, and... Uh, uh, Alan Doyle showed up. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, and there was more pictures taken in the back of that man's head than he'll ever know. <laughs> <laughs> and his glorious head of hair. Oh, yeah, yeah. But anyway, we, we were coming into the lobby, and uh, my wife, Denise, now she was uh, uh, she was busy looking around and everything else stuff, and I noticed not the one side, so I turned to her and said, Alan Doyle. And it was a little bit loud in the lobby at the time, so she never really understood what I said so just before the show opened he come in and started coming out of the three aisles down from us hey, I think it was him and his voice I'm not sure if you got a young fellow on that he does yeah he has a son mm-hmm. yeah oh young fellow big load of black hair alright they're fairly tall anyway I think that was him anyway and he's uh, so anyway uh, voice looks over and says hey Kev I think that's down the come across there and I said gee it is black <laughs> So I told you that in the lobby. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and we had another couple, uh, 91.9. That's another sister station, I'm assuming. In yeah, hot, in, hot FM, I think it's called. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. And we, uh, they, they sat us next to a lovely couple of one ticket from that station. Uh, a guy named Kurt, and they don't mind I asked him for that Saber name on the radio there when I met him there yesterday or that night. Anyway, uh, Kurt and the Paul from CBS, 
and but we had we had a great time. They're a really lovely couple, and we got to know each other. We exchanged business cards, like the thing, right? So, yeah. And uh, there's another couple to the left of myself and wife, and they were from Toronto. And he was his name was uh, and uh, oh my God, we got email addresses, we got pictures going back and forth. And anyway, uh, they were uh, Doctor uh, Doctor uh, uh, oh my Brandon. Um, Boyle, Byron Boyce, sorry, and his wife, Suzanne Boyce. Now, apparently, Suzanne was a director, producer type thing with CTV for years. And she, she, uh, who, who was, uh, I remember Barbara Frum had her own little documentary show on CBC, but I'm trying to remember the lady now that she told me to have on CBC. But anyway, and, but they'd seen the show in Toronto. And they wanted to come down here and see the show here in Gander just to experience the Newfoundland crowd and see what our reaction was like. Mm-hmm. And they were blown away, blown away. So just to say they're doing a great job in Gander, and uh, I was really taken back by it because I was one of the bus drivers to come out to pick line that day. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, yeah it was. And uh, so when I won the tickets, I told the wife, I said, you know, we got a daughter down 33, right? And I told her, I said, I don't know why I bought her that. I'm more of an ACD man, right? And I'm much more proud by us, folks. But I am now. That was very well put together, well done. But what struck me, Patty, was that they, they, uh, uh, at the end of it, or the, the, the last part of it, the show, we'll say, is that I think like that's like I lost in it for me, or not so much for me, but other people that probably weren't there like us. I mean, we were only there a couple of days, but they come out to take the line. And they asked us to go with our supervisor at the time, and uh, and we just, there was no hesitation. And we were told that we were going to get paid for this for a couple of days, whatever. I don't think, I remember the boys in the break room in the morning before us going out on, on our bus runs, uh, anybody ever mentioned or phoned the school board or the union and said, well, where's our money? We need to be paid for that. That, that was, I can't even remember the topic coming up. We just went out, did it, went back on the picket line and went out from there. Yeah, but... Uh, but anyway, it was a pretty cool experience. I remember people coming off the bus, and uh, you go to the tarmac and pick them up and bring them back in, and then you let them out. You help the, help the folks down that were having trouble getting off the bus. And you got more hugs and kisses and smiles than you'll ever get in a lifetime. <laughs> so it was pretty cool. Yeah, to be involved in any capacity, I'm sure, is uh, something people will never forget. You know, the, uh, the production itself come from way. I really enjoyed it, I have to say. And I'm not necessarily a... You know, that's not not Broadway. I've seen Broadway shows, and I don't mind a good musical, but sometimes if it's a little bit too, quote-unquote, noofy, then maybe sometimes I don't necessarily like that so much. But this is a lovely production. It's a great story, terrific performances. And, of course, some locals have been involved with it, notably Petrina Bromley, Gillian Kiley, was the uh, producer or director of this particular uh, edition of Come From Away out in Gander. 37 shows, all of them sold out. I don't know what became of the fact that they had a sickness run through the cast that canceled some three shows. I don't know if they managed to add any more at the end for those who had tickets to those programs or those performances. But anyway, I'm glad you enjoyed it, Kevin. It's good to have you on the show. And Doyle's a fine fella. He makes time for everybody. He's pretty, he's pretty personable. Well, the wife got a picture with him. I can't believe she'd leave me for Alan Doyle. Honest to God, Patty, I don't know what's wrong with her. <laughs> Kevin, you just count your lucky stars. You haven't lost her. Oh, no, no, great woman. 35 years next month. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. And Patty, I sent you an email about, uh, for for you to check out. Uh, uh, 
uh, Bob D. Uh, the, the, the funeral home. I just sent you the address for it. I just saw that float through. Uh, so it's the the obituaries on Hoskins Funeral Home website. Got it. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. I appreciate the time, Kevin. I, I played Bob uh, briefly. Uh, I started playing old harmless hockey when I was 40. I'm 60 now. Um, I was 38. Really, I got in early. The boys let me in because they knew I wasn't a threat. <laughs> so anyway, and we played Bob and Bob one. Like first time I ever met the man, never knew him from Adam. Right? And I'd say Bob was I don't know. He was 15 years my, you know, ahead of me. And he still had legs that that I would have loved when I was 18. I was a guy skating. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, Zach comes by it, honestly. Some talent in the family. Yes, sir. Very nice. Appreciate the call, Kevin. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Take good care. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. uh, There you go. Let's take a break. When we come back, Don wants to talk about the taxi business. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Don, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Patty, um, I'm going to try to speak with knowledge and facts, so you'll have to forgive me if I I, kind of speak from emotion, but I've been running a two-car taxi operation in the city of St. John's for the last 28 years. Um... Uh, our government and, and the city has said that they're, they're willing to work with the province, are willing to work with the industry to to provide transportation for people. I reached out to the city a little while back, uh, expressed that I'd that I'd be interested in obtaining. Don, I can't hear you very clearly. We're bad connection, so maybe give it a shuffle a few feet one way or the other, see if we get a better one. Okay, can you hear me now? Much better. Go ahead. Okay, so I reached out to the city and expressed that I'd, I'd like to apply for another taxi license to, to grow my business after 28 years of being in business. I reached out to my counselor. He's been fantastic, uh, but he's only one man with a very busy job to do. Uh, I recently ran in some trouble with one of my vehicles where I lost the transmission. Uh, I went to my insurance. I transferred my, my insurance to, an, to another vehicle. Fast forward seven days after I did that, we got rendered in a, in a car accident, stopped at a red light. I'm two weeks in now, uh, still haven't heard from an insurance company. My vehicle still sits at an out-of-body shop. Nobody has contacted me. The insurance industry, I'm deemed high risk, uh, so I'm paying through the nose for my insurance. Uh, I removed the insurance from the vehicle that I had the transmission trouble with and just put it on a new vehicle. When the vehicle that was in the accident, through no fault of ours, was was un, un, unoperatable, uh, I phoned my insurance, told them I got another vehicle. I wanted to transfer the insurance from the vehicle that was in the accident down to another vehicle so I can maintain my business. My insurance notifies me that because I've been involved in an accident, I have to purchase a new insurance policy. I said, okay, well, if that's what I had to do, then that's what I got to do to stay in business. But they can tell me what my new policy is going to cost me, so I have to do it all up, send it all off, and pay whatever they deem fit that they're going to charge me. Now, my insurance is through Nordic, which is facility insurance, which, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm deemed high risk. And my, my province, our government, allows these people to operate in our business, and they dictate to me what I pay, they dictate to me. I don't even know what to say because my emotions are getting involved here now, Patty. I'm. I'm just wondering if you can offer up some advice. 
Well, the whole facility insurance thing that, you know, I think some of those conversations uh, take place at the PUB. And if I'm not mistaken, the taxi association went to the PUB about exactly that because it just doesn't really sound like it makes a lot of sense. It sounds completely unfair. Why would a taxi driver, even though you're on the road more than I am and all the rest of it, but why aren't you dealt with by your driver's abstract versus simply because you're in a certain industry? Number one. So the PUB is kind of the home of that conversation, but the inability to get a quote on a price I wouldn't know where to put you on that one. Eddie, well, I reached out to the PUB and explained to the gentleman who gracefully took my phone call and explained to him what I was paying. His response to me was, I have no idea where they're coming up with their numbers. Okay. So, like, how it is our government is, I get it. I get I'm on the road a lot more than the normal Joe. I, I understand that. But I have a clean abstract and I have no moving violations. My government and the city of St. John's tell me I have to have Section 6C, which covers passengers. If you get in your personal vehicle there now this evening, you take three of your co-workers down to Shamrock City downtown, and unfortunately you guys get an accident, your passengers are covered. So it's almost like our government is allowing the insurance companies, the big guy who I can't fight, they're allowing them to operate a business in our province where they and they alone dictate what the cost is. Now, when my car, when somebody sees fit 14 days in and my car still sits at an auto body shop, I don't think it's unreasonable for me to expect to receive a phone call from an adjuster and say, hey, Mr. Earl, your car, I'm sorry about that, but anyway, it is what it is. Now everybody knows who I am. Your car is unrepairable or it is repairable. I don't expect anybody to move mountains for me. I could be still waiting for 10, 12 days for parts to come in. It is what it is. Yeah, now that wouldn't be a, a government issue, but they, they owe you better customer service than that. Inside the world but of... But, but excuse me, Patty, but there's no one to complain to. Other than reaching out the open line, and you've been very graceful in your show, and you, my call here now is going to reach listeners, and maybe, just maybe, somebody can offer up some advice. But the problem is I'm handcuffed here now with a one-car business when I've reached out to the city of St. John's and said, hey, after 28 years, man, I just need to grow. And if you're willing to entertain the idea of Uber or Ryder, I, I, I accept and I welcome competition in our industry. But the room is not there for me to grow. The room. So if our mayor is listening, which I'm sure he is, or somebody at City Hall is listening, if you really want to help the customers in the city of St. John's and the pedestrians to get home from the George Street Festival, do something that you haven't done in 20 years. Offer up some taxi licenses. Offer them up. Like this, this sure. is just, this is just a, 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 something that's snowballing, and my emotions are going over, over on me here now. This is something that's just snowballing, snowballing. When I ask company who are in Halifax who are in Halifax like who else can I speak to so I asked them to sell my my claim to a manager to a manager and the response I got from the young man he just kind of chuckled and he said yeah sure sure we'll excel it to a manager but I don't want to do anything he said it's going to delay your case any further so like somebody has to be able to say to me we're not at fault third party has accepted all responsibilities is if we were stopped at a red light and we got rear-ended from behind and I'm two weeks today trying to operate a business 
with one vehicle and nobody from the insurance has even reached out to me to say, hey, we're going to go look at your vehicle. Maybe it's repairable. Maybe it's not. Maybe I can move on from it. So, like I said, when I went to my insurance company to say, hey, I want to take the insurance now off of that vehicle that I can no longer drive, but I'm paying insurance on it. And I had to purchase a brand new insurance policy where I didn't, where my emotions took over again. I, I start out now the two vehicles that I have insured. I do get a little bit of a break because I do have a clean abstract and I do have a good driving record. But the new vehicle, so now I only have two taxi licenses, but I actually have three Nordic insurance policies. And the new one that I have no idea what I'm paying for, I don't get any credit for my driving abstract because now I'm considered a brand new driver. Okay. So for a couple of points that you made, the difference between me having passengers and you is that my passengers aren't paying me. So I suppose that's the insurance liability there. To file a complaint about insurance companies in in the country, there is an ombudsman inside the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, number one. If you're talking about garages and any issues with consumer affairs, consumer complaints, those can be filed at Digital Government Service NL. So there's the two ones. Insurance company, the Financial Consumer Agency, and for any garage-related matters or those types of things at the uh, Service NL, the provincial department. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's that's all great. But in today's real world, that's... I have I have drivers who are now unemployed, who are staying home, and I can't get anybody to call me back. Like I get it, I get the world doesn't move, you know, because I think it should move faster. But in today's world, somebody somewhere should say, you know what, this is wrong. What we're doing to the taxi industry is wrong. We're willing to change legislation to allow Uber and Rideshare to come here, but we're not willing to sit down with the taxi industry and say, hang on, hang on. Now, if you do have customers or or drivers in the industry who do have good abstracts and who do not have moving violations, we are going to change it so that they are charged accordingly and stop being, we're being robbed. We're being robbed and our government is standing by and watching it happen. I appreciate the call, Don. Let me know if anything works out. Yes, I appreciate your time, buddy. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. And, you know, on that front, and look, this is not incorrect, but uh, Aaron says, taxi drivers are vastly more likely to have an accident in one-year period versus the average driver because of miles driven. Yeah, everybody understands that. You know, the more you're on the road, increase the frequency or the potential for infractions or to dirty up your driver's abstract. But that doesn't take away from the fact that if I have a clean driver's abstract, but to be automatically in facility insurance simply because of the industry, there is an essence of unfair about that, isn't there? Uh, let's go to line number two. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, you doing? Okay, you. My bad. Listen, uh, I just want to take up too much of your time. Uh, i just seen some reports on uh, social media. The, there's another landslide down in Harbour Breton seen a few pictures there earlier and I called because it was only the other day I saw a story about a anniversary of a landslide down there. Yeah, the 50th anniversary comes up on the 1st of August. There was uh, four kids killed in a landslide, if I remember the story correctly. I read it the other day, too. Yeah, uh, but uh, I, I just saw earlier uh, on uh, social media that apparently there's another landslide down there this morning. I haven't seen it, but of course, lots of stuff escapes me while I'm doing the show, but I can check with the newsroom and see what they know. Yes, my buddy, that'd be great. No problem. And if I find out anything, I'll talk about it right after the break. Thank you.
Thank you. Thanks, Mike. All right. All, all, all the best. Yeah, so that is true. The 50th anniversary of that fatal landslide comes up on the 1st of August. Four homes swashed out into the sea because of the landslide. Four kids were killed. I think there was 14 survivors uh, in addition to the four deaths. The youngest child, I think, was like 21 months old, so a pretty sad story. All right, so we last week we talked about home share. We actually had a fellow on the program who's uh, created an app up along trying to match seniors in particular with students, international students most notably, about a little bit of help for the senior, a little bit of help in the break on rent for the student, sharing some of the duties around the home, the win-win-win that it creates there. Then you move it off into newcomers to the country, and in particular Ukrainians. There's people talking about the fact that they are spending sometimes a fairly long stretch inside hotels, and the issues regarding housing. A new program, a new idea coming from the Association of New Canadians is trying to deal with that particular issue. Kerry Murray, the Associate Director for Ukraine Services with the ANC, joins us after this break. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Sigmar to the Associate Director for Ukraine Services with the Association for New Canadians. That's Kerry Murray. Good morning, Kerry. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you doing? Great today. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good, good. Surviving the heat. Yeah, it's a battle. I find uh, I try not to complain about it because it's uh, very fleeting. We don't get a whole lot of heat throughout the course of the year, but yeah, it can be pretty sticky in the bunk. Yeah, never complain. Try not to. Uh, Kerry, talk about the new homestay hosting program. What have you created? So the homestay program is a result of a collaborative partnership with the uh, the Department of Immigration, Population Growth and Skills, and their Office of Immigration and Multiculturalism. So what we've put in place is a process where we can match local families with uh, Ukrainian families uh, for up to a period of five months. And part of the, part of the, the program is a stipend, a monthly stipend of $1,000 to help uh, local families offset some of the incremental costs that come with opening your home to another family. Uh, there's a, this now. It's not just a financial sort of transaction. Part of the objective here is to help is for the local family to bring a Ukrainian family into their social circle, their community circle, their family circle, and and help them get integrated into the community you know in a, in a much better way well i mean you know it's not just coming to a foreign land i mean and trying to put a roof over your head even just navigating and understanding the community and just some basics about living here you know unless they have direct supports for instance from you or from other ukrainians who have been here a little longer or whatever the case may be it can be pretty daunting so beyond the money there's a lot of upside for both sides here the host and the hosted family Absolutely. I mean, there's a, I mean, for to be able to take advantage of living with a local family for that length of time, uh, I mean, the benefits are, you know, you help support their involvement and participation in the community. Uh, you help give them, help advance their knowledge and improve language skills, uh, help them get a greater understanding of culture here, 
at the same time, the local family gets a greater understanding of Ukrainian culture. You get to make friends, which is, you know, you can never have too many friends. Uh, and, you know, and, the, and just to help them accelerate learning about living in Newfoundland and Labrador and what, uh, what that involves. And you also, you're providing them partially with a, a safe and con- secure home to bridge from temporary accommodations to more permanent accommodations. So it's a, it is it is a win-win situation for sure. And when we talk about language skills, the implication there isn't simply to make people's lives easier to be able to be a part of the community and understand what's happening. But of course, when we talk about employability down the road, I mean, language skills are one of the issues that employers talk about. So yes, you need to be able to communicate effectively, especially if you're working in situations where uh, direct and concise communications is part of safety on the job. Whatever we can do, whether it be programs at the ANC or programs in schools or at vocational schools or in this setting, that's a big piece of the puzzle. Yeah, and I mean, we offer support in a whole range of areas to help people become part of the community, whether that's employment, language is obviously critical, especially from, you know, getting a job, but the health, you know, some jobs are more dangerous than others, and the health and safety piece is, is absolutely critical. We do job-specific training, uh, you know, for specific types of employment. Uh, we have a housing team that helps secure permanent accommodations, uh, you know, and a whole ra- it's a whole range of wraparound services that that uh, that are available. And when families are matched with local families, they'll still be able to avail of those services, employment, housing search, all that sort of thing. And, you know, we all know the reality of the housing market here. It's uh, extremely tight and has a very low vacancy rate. So it's, um, it's a challenge. Where did the cutoff of five months come from? I think, well, the, the program was developed uh, by OIM, and it was just thought, based on some of the feedback that we've had from, you know, there are hosting arrangements that are happening now in the community, both uh, inside the Avalon and across the province, that happened more organically, where they, they connected on social media, they were met at the airport, you know, that sort of thing. So uh, just, you know, just in, in, in doing a bit of research on, on what are the... What you know? What are the the key points, or how how long should the program last? What are some of the challenges to hosting a family and those sorts of things? And we also re, it's been done across Canada. We're not uh, reinventing the wheel. Mm-hmm. It's been done in a whole bunch of different sectors, like you mentioned earlier, seniors. Uh, so we reached out some more to some organizations across the country that had done hosting programs, and what was some of the you know feedback they got, and where were some of the challenges around how you do that. Now, it's not a, uh, I mean, there are certain criteria local families would have to meet. Uh, you have to have a, a certificate of conduct uh, check through the RNC. You have to uh, provide a personal reference. You have to uh, agree to a visit from one of our housing officers to your home, that sort of thing. So there's some, you know, and then there's an orientation session and then families are matched. So there is a process to, to uh, become part of the program. And how about the so-called vetting of the Ukrainians that would hope to live in your home? So exactly, they'll have the same process. I mean, when uh, when newcomers arrive in Canada, there's security and background checks and all that sort of thing. And you know, we have a case we have case managers and our housing team that know the families here intimately well. And there are some that are 
you know, there's large families, small families, single parents, uh, people with, uh, you know, other challenges. And we'll, uh, you know, we'll review and start that process of how we are of matching local families and Ukrainian families. And, uh, and then the process will unfold. We're going to start with probably 20 families. Uh, and then we, we have the ability to scale it up, you know, upwards to 100 if, uh, if it gets to that point. Do we have any families that are hosting a Ukrainian family under this program as of yet? No. No, not yet. There are some out there in the community that, uh, or across the province, actually. But uh, no, we haven't. That process is underway right now about as to how we uh, reach out to interested local families and then compile a list of families uh, from the Ukraine that are interested in being part of the program. I suppose uh, just go directly to the ANC offices or website, I would imagine, is it, Kerry? So on our website, there's contact information. There's a, for the homestay program, it's on the home page. You just scroll down to the bottom. There's a big Ukrainian flag on our landing page. There's an email, uh, homestay at ancnl.ca. There's also a telephone number for people who would rather get in touch that way. Of course, you know, when newcomers to the country, the concern voiced by many, and I know you hear this stuff all the time, is the amount of money and the length of time that some families, Ukrainian or otherwise, are spending in hotels. The government imposed a 45-day limit. I don't know how clearly or how closely that's being adhered to, but what can you tell us about the Ukrainian families that are in hotels? Because people worry about the costs associated, but of course, they didn't come here to live in hotels either. So there's, say, two sides of that particular concern. What do we know? Well, I mean, no, people don't come here to live in hotels, but, you know, those are th- those were those are there as temporary accommodations. Uh, our housing team and case managers work with each family to secure more permanent housing, uh, to secure employment. Uh, and our housing team has has found accommodations for hundreds and hundreds of Ukrainian families and individuals in a difficult market. So. It's, uh, you know, that's uh, that, that process with the 45-day, yes, it's, you know, there, it, it's not healthy to live in a hotel for an extended and long period of time. And there is a cost associated to it. So it's, uh, you know, you have to find a balance. 100%. Uh, anything else you need to tell us or like to talk about, Kerry, while we have you this morning? No, I just think if there are any, you know, people in your listening audience that are interested or want more information on this homestay program and how you become involved, just simply reach out to the ANC and uh, we'll go from there. Uh, Good to have you on the show. Keep us in the loop as to the progress and status. Okay, thanks for the opportunity, Patty. Happy to do it, Kerry. Take care. Bye-bye. Kerry Murray, Associate Director for Ukraine Services with the Association for New Canadians. So Kevin called about his experience, which was really quite delightful, with Come From Away and Alan Doyle was there and all the rest of it. So I wondered aloud whether or not there were any additional shows based on prior cancellations, and apparently there are. So they added five in total, so that's good news because you can only imagine the disappointment for people who were so quick to get the tickets. They sold out all 37 performances, Lickety split and then there was the issue of people who actually traveled to the province they were trying to accommodate with them with some of the seats that were uh, set aside for their own creative staff but apparently all has been taken care of as best possible all right also very quickly caller regarding the potential or whether or not there was a landslide in harbor breton 
Apparently there has been. So uh, someone sent me a few pictures here. Apparently the slide occurred around 5 a.m. this morning. No houses in the immediate area. So Hydro and Bella Line crews are on the scene, but I don't think they've been given the go-ahead by government to uh, go ahead and proceed with whatever work they need to do. But apparently, yes, indeed, there was a slide. I have some photos here around 5 o'clock this morning. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the mayor of Harbour Breton. That's Lloyd Blake. Good morning, Mayor Blake. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing this morning? Excellent. Thanks for asking. How about you, Mayor? Oh, I'm doing good, thanks. So we were asked the question as to whether or not there was a landslide in your community, and I've been sent some pictures that apparently one happened at 5 a.m. this morning. What do we know? Yeah, we had a, uh, I guess, a mudslide on, on, on Canada Drive on the north side and the south side of Harbour Britain. And um, the hydro poles and the telephone belonging to uh, Bill Alliance uh, is in, well, I guess is in uh, jeopardy. Uh, so we have to get, uh, hydro's already been on the scene, so they've taken care of their problem. But the um, Bill Alliance people, we're waiting for them to come in now and assess their situation, right? So we had to we had to close the road to one lane traffic, but yeah, but there's no property damage or or no people affected and that sort of thing, right? We've we've had torrential rains and and rain and drizzle for most of the month of July actually, and I guess with the the ground became saturated and and sort of let go, right? There's nothing in comparison to what happened in 1973. Yeah, well, gladly there's no properties that were damaged by this particular mudslide, and hopefully that remains the case if indeed there's any more shifting of land. But what can you tell us about not only what happened on the 1st of August 1973, but what the community has planned for the 50th anniversary? Let's start with 1973. Remind the folks what exactly happened. Well, back in uh, back in 19, August 1st, 1973, we had a major landslide. Actually, uh, there was there was a uh, you know f- four people died at that time as well. Four small children belonging to one family, Jack and Olive Hickey, and there was uh, there was 14 survivors as well, and there was four houses destroyed, and we had to. Um, Moved people ahead of that area back in the, back in the early 70s, and they moved up into the arm area, right? And there was one lady that was trapped in her house behind a. Back in them days, people used wooden stove, used wood for their source of heat, and they had to. And this lady was trapped for I think six hours actually, right? So on August the first, we're going to commemorate that event by having a, a service at the landside. And back in I think it was. 1997, the previous mayor of our town, Eric Skinner, undertaking to to erect the uh, monument honoring these four children. So that we're going to have a service there on August the 1st, and then we're going to the Elliott premises, which is our tourism area, and do a sort of a little ceremony to remember the event. So now that we know that it's not only possible, but it happened in that area, is there a ban on development in and around that area? Well, this area has been identified as a danger zone for a number of years, okay. actually. And there's no, there haven't been any, any, um, any houses or any building permits in that area for several years, actually. With good reason. Yes, for sure, yeah. So you've had unfortunate weather compared to, say, this neck of the woods has been really quite dry, albeit humid, but no rain to speak of, a little bit here this morning. Uh, other than that, are you seeing many, much in the way of tourists down and around Harbour Breton this summer? 
boy, there haven't been a lot of tours around, as far as I know. But you know, most of our, a lot of our, I guess we're not real big into tourism. But we we have a lot of people coming back every summer. Our former residents visiting, right? So even though the weather hasn't been great in July, but August is uh, August is our best month down here on the, on the South Coast. And, you know, we have terrific weather in April, May, and June as well, right? But, you know, tourists are not on the go during these times of year, right? But, but there, there, there are people around. I noticed uh, even though with our weather, there's, there's a number of strangers in town when you go for a walk and that sort of thing. So sometimes the weather, you know, we, we're not dealing with extreme heat like in other parts of the province or country. So, you know, we're, we're still maintaining, you know, our daily temperatures are still 20 degrees. So you can still get out, even though it's foggy, but it's not, lots of days it's dry. You can still get out for a walk, but unfortunately you can't see to, see our beautiful scenery during the fog. No. The last time I was in Harbour Breton, now I know the roads are not great in many parts, if not most of the province, but the last time I drove in and out of Harbour Breton, I think it's Route 460, if I remember correctly. Uh, 360. 360. Absolutely abysmal. What's the status of the road these days? Well, our our 360 highway is in is in really good shape, actually. But our local roads, as you know, our local roads we're we're working on continuously with our trying for capital work projects and that sort of thing, right? But that, the the fact that you brought that up is interesting because uh, you know we, we're getting projects approved by our provincial government. We we have two million dollars now approved for two local roads. But there's a problem getting the work and getting the tendering done on behalf of the, the, the provincial government. Like the, two of the projects that we've identified and gotten the funding for, up to I think it's you know close. To, it is two million dollars. We were hoping to, for that road work, road or infrastructure work to start probably in April, and we're up in July now, and that's that work haven't been as approved, but it haven't been started. Every time I talk to people in the provincial government, well, you know, they're short staff and this sort of thing, right? So, you know, I think we need to, you know, we're pressuring our MHA and, and others to, and according to him, you know, if they're short staff, they should be hiring people. So there's no hiring freeze within the provincial government. I don't know if it's like the the other, you know, the doctors such in health care, they just can't get people to work for them anymore. I don't know what the issues is. But it's unfortunate we have this money, and now we're into the end of July, and these infrastructure projects have been started. Right? It's a bit frustrating as as a municipality that you know you 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 have to prove that we can provide our 10 percent or 20 percent, and we get approval, and it's like a year later, and these projects aren't started. That's very frustrating. I would imagine it is. When they changed that cost-sharing arrangement, I'm going to say a decade or so ago, it really felt like it was in an effort to try to see fewer and fewer projects proceed based on the cost-share model. But now that communities are able to come up with the money through whatever means, now if the approvals are in place, it's just hard to understand. Look, you're not the only mayor who's talked to me about those types of issues and those types of delays. It's kind of hard to understand. We make you jump through all the hoops, you get through them all, and you're still sitting around waiting. Exactly. You know, we we, we taught these two projects here in Harbor Britain will be well underway in July, you know, and, and they they're keep telling us it's, it's gone to consulting and then they're going to go to tendering and that's that's going to be another three or four weeks before that's approved. So, you know, I, I'm wondering if these two projects that we had approved back in September of 2022 will, will be done this year and probably not, right? Which is very frustrating. Well, the construction season uh, ends pretty quickly here if we're talking about doing it right, you exactly. know. Exactly, yeah. 
Uh, last one before I let you go, Mayor. You know, people, it was a long stretch there where one of the big contentious issues regarding the economy and industry and where jobs were created was surrounding aquaculture. How many people in your community directly employed or indirectly employed by the aquaculture industry? Well, you know, a number. Of, we have a number of people implied, you know, in di- directly and indirectly in, in in the building up the sea cages and and uh, pr- providing um, supplies to the sites and working at the processing plant, right? And it's uh, a number of people from Harbour Britain and throughout the coast of bays, right? Well, you know, I'd say 60% of our employees work in the agriculture industry, right? And without it. Harbour Breton would be one of those communities that would be on the fast track to no longer existing. Or? Well, if agriculture hadn't started here in, in the late 80s and right. 90s and into 2000, I think the, the old coast of Bay is not include not only Harbour Breton, you'll be looking at a very different situation here today. And as you know, the wild fishery closed in 92 in the northern cod. We were a few years later, but we were, we we certainly fell in fell in that um, in, on that bandwagon as well. We're no, no, no work in the wall of fishery, right? Yeah. So if it wasn't for aquaculture, there'd be a lot of pockets of the province that would be really having a hard time keeping anybody around with no jobs locally. Uh, it's good to have you on the show this morning, uh, uh, Mayor Blake. Anything else you want to say before we say goodbye? No. Thanks for your call and thanks for your interest in our in our mud slide. But hopefully uh, we'll work through that, like uh, we worked through everything else here in in Harbour Breton. Um, we're just waiting now, like I said, for Bell Alliance people to come in and assist what they're going to do with the pole that's broken and that sort of thing, right? I appreciate the time. Give us an update whenever you have one. Take care and have a great day. The same to you, sir. Bye-bye. That's Mayor Lloyd Blake out in the town of Harbour Breton. Let's get a lost set of keys or found a set of keys before we get to the news. Line two. Lana, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Uh, we just found a set of keys. They look like car keys and there's seven or eight keys on the ring. Uh, right across from Carl's funeral home and if anybody would could find out who owns them they can give me a call at uh, 765-5375 or 576-0692 I appreciate that so across the the road there on Le Marchant uh, across some calls found a set of keys if you're in and around that area and you can't find your keys then Lana probably has them I've got your numbers. Thank you, very much. Thank you for the Thank time, you Lana. Much. You're welcome. Bye bye. All right, bye bye. All right, let's take a break for the newscast. When we go back, still a big stretch of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 5:45 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration, shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Matt, you're on the air. Yeah, hi, Patty. Thanks for having me No problem. Listen, I was, I haven't been out in a while, but I had this uh, point that came up that I was looking through the research I've been doing, as you know. I've been looking into this stuff that I've been squawking about for a long time, and if you don't mind, I'll read out a paragraph from a report in 2003 that the Service Canada, I guess, or the you know HRSDC, called Listening to Canadians, says, the main issue with respect to private insurers, however, relies to uh, relates to a practice known as offsetting benefits. Now, that's clawbacks and stuff. In this case, the insurer deducts the actual or anticipated amount of Canada Pension Plan disability benefits a person is entitled to from the total amount of long-term disability they should have received. 
in some cases, to sit down prior to determining an individual's kind of the pension plan disability, a practice which we find unconscionable. Okay, so when I saw the word unconscionable, well, that means shameful. And I agree, wouldn't you? And they're taking money into account, counting their chickens before they hatch, because a person who applies for Canada Pension Plan Disability only has a 35 to 40% chance of getting approved. So they what's what's that 35 to 40% based on, Matt? Uh, statistics that I've seen about how much, how many people will get approved when, you know, you have 100 people apply, 35 or 40 will get approved. Okay. Right? Yep. So, in fact, Back in 1966, in the RCMP Superannuation Act actual report, they said only 10% would would get approved, even if they got disabled enough that they wouldn't be able to get, uh, you know, still serve as an RCMP member. And by 74, it was up to 25%. But okay, so the paragraph goes on, taking into consideration the length of time processing kind of the pension plan disability application, and if need be, appealing a negative uh, decision, which again is 65, you know, 60 percent of the people, individuals may receive only part of their legitimate benefits up to three years. And to say the least, that this can result in severe financial hardship for some. In our opinion, some is too many. Now, when I read that, it triggered me because I've been laying low for the last couple of years after COVID and everything. But the government knew that this has been unconscionable and veterans have come to me. You know, I'm always working on veterans. This happens to other people besides veterans. But insurance companies across Canada have with the government's knowledge, because, you know, this is an official report for the last 20 years. That was in 2003. We're now in 2023. So they've been doing this unconscionable practice of estimating people's Canada pension plan and reducing their payments, even though they're not actually getting it. That kind of stuff shouldn't happen. I I think you'd agree. Well, yes. It would be different if they actually had it, right? If It would balance. You know, you would get it, and they'd take it off. But they're taking it off ahead of time, you know, which is insane. Now, uh, veterans are having it done, and I'd like to point out that in my estimation, this is awful. I'm trying not to curse, because the government who sends a soldier into battle shouldn't profit from their long-term disability because if they get disabled in battle then they would probably get the service income support insurance plan long-term disability then manually who administers the policy they don't underwrite the policy they don't take the profit or loss risk it is the government of canada who underwrites it so basically the government then profits by doing this estimation and even if the private industry does it i think the government ought to lead instead of follow you know they should not do things like this because it's antisocial. It's not good for public policy. Not, it's not going to help our recruitment and retention if you treat soldiers like this, veterans, I mean, because they're no longer soldiers. So obviously, and I'm part of your Facebook uh, group chat, so I see all these notes fly by. Just give the folks some, you know, insight as to how Veterans Affairs reacts to these types of very distinct issues that should have some explanation associated with them. But as far as I can tell, you get very little. But just describe your interaction with Veterans Affairs on this. Well, this one would be the Department of National Defense long-term disability insurance, but they are related because the government, and I've been telling the Office of Veterans Ombudsman this for a long time, they have what's called a program arrangement between the Department of National Defense, Veterans Affairs Canada, and CISIP Financial Services. Now, CISIP Financial Services is a 
part of the Canadian Forces, but it's not part of the public service. So they sat down in 2006 and signed a program arrangement that said the Service Income Support Insurance Plan, Policy 901-102, will be the first provider of income replacement if a person gets medically released. So because of this, the Army's long-term disability insurance forms the bulk of Veterans Affairs Canada's payment. So Veterans Affairs has an income replacement benefit program from 2006 until 2018, 16. They never paid a cent because both the Department of National Defense Insurance and Veterans Affairs earnings loss benefit at the time were both based at 75%. So if one paid, the other one never. Now, the problem with that is they're not the same thing. One is a private insurance that did soldier purchased, and the other one is sort of like a workers' compensation system. So because they're sort of different, you should be able to get both payments. One indemnifies you for your loss, like a lawsuit in tort, and the other one is a non-indemnity, which means it doesn't compensate for anything, payment that you get because of the insurance policy that only people who buy the insurance get it. So when I've been talking to the Veterans Affairs about this, I'm telling them they should get in touch with the Canadian Forces Ombudsman and they should do a joint investigation. Now, I also spoke to the vice chairman of the Human, I got, I got it up here, the uh, House Commons Committee, the Human Resources Standing Committee on Human Resources, Skill and Social Development and the Status of Persons with Disabilities. Now, this was their report in 2003, and I told the staffer there, you know, I expect as a taxpayer and a voter that 20 years after, you would have done something about it. You know, why, if they found it unconscionable back in 2003, what did they do about it? I think it's a very good question. You know? It is a good question. That's a long time for the same issue to persist. Uh, anything else you want to say, Matt, before I take another call this morning? Well, Two quick points, because it's kind of related. One is about the cost of living allowance, the Consumer Price Index, uh, Inflation Protection on Canada Pension Plan, Old Age, and all the stuff, and that's a good public policy, because if not, people end up on welfare, right? If you were on a fixed amount and you never got an inflation adjustment that matched inflation and you couldn't buy as much, eventually you'd end up on welfare, so the government would end up paying anyway. So that's my take on why they have full inflation protection on like old age and kind of the pension plan. But they said here, and I'll read it out real quick, another potential shortcoming associated with the interaction of Canada Pension Plan disability and long-term disability relates to the treatments for increases in Canada Pension Plan disability resulting from cost of living adjustments. CPP disability benefits are fully indexed to inflation so that payments can keep up with changes in the cost of living. But if a long-term disability payment that is integrated with Canada Pension Plan is not similarly indexed, individuals could experience some erosion in the real value of their integrated pension uh, payments. Yeah, of course, time. purchase power goes down if it's yes. not indexed. You of get. course. So moreover, there is no doubt that this produces a benefit transfer to other disability income support providers. So they subsidize. That's the way I read it, a benefit transfer. Uh, and this is insane. Like the service income support insurance plan has a cap of 2% on inflation. Now, that means that veterans, whether they were hurt in service or not, if inflation is high, they will slow slowly fall into poverty. And that isn't right. Now, the other point I want to mention. Very quickly, Matt, because I have to go. Is the flat rate. 
for the Canada Pension Plan. It's made up of two components, the Canada Pension Plan disability is, the economic perk based on your own stuff, and a flat rate that's much higher usually. Like I said here in this report, that last part, I said the full impact of Canada Pension Plan indexation must be realized by the CPP disability beneficiary. Well, I say the same thing for a flat rate. The government put like a pretty big flat rate on the Canada Pension Plan disability. But if those insurers and other programs, including welfare, take into account the whole Canada Pension Plan disability payment, the flat rate that's meant for the beneficiary is going to an insurance company or a province. That wasn't what it was meant to Anyway, thanks for having me on there, Pat. Appreciate the call, Matt. Take care. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, as we mentioned off the top of the program, the crab harvesters through the FFAW are speaking out about an issue regarding the government sometimes picking winners and losers. Let's talk about oil exploration conducted by Exxon and their Hercules drill rig out on the Jean d'Arc Basin, prime fishing grounds. The president of the FFAW is Greg Purdy. He's up after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. As advertised, join us on line number four. It's the president of the FFAW. That's Greg Purdy. Good morning, Greg. You're on the air. How are you? Best kind. How are you doing? Well, good. Pretty good. What's happening in the Jean d'Arc Basin? Well, we've got a major problem out there. Uh, let me start off by saying that uh, this is not a new issue. Uh, the union has been uh, battling with this issue, and presenting, uh, representing, advocating on behalf of harvesters back as far as 2015. And we were dumbfounded to, to find out that... Uh, they plunked the Hercules right on to a prime gra- a crab grounds. I got 370 kilometers east of St. John's. I mean, I don't know how these cats expect us to operate. Like, we just go out there and, and the, uh, the rig appears out of the fog. But we didn't even have the coordinates. So people are really upset with this one. We've had a tough year uh, by any stretch. And uh, God knows it was on the Internet and it was in the news. But to make decisions like that, you know, without being transparent, uh, is really insulting the harvesters. And not only the harvesters, Patty, but, the, but the, the province. You know, we spend a whole lot of time advocating, trying to, to build uh, associations, relationships with the oil industry. And somebody said to me this morning, he said, you know, there's no fishery in that acro- uh, acronym. It needs to be in there to create... Canada, Newfoundland, Labrador, Offshore Petroleum Board needs that fishing component to start to doing to start to, to do this properly. So people are upset and rightfully so. Uh, imagine uh, somebody plunking an oil uh, platform, a drilling rig, a ship uh, on your work area, and you know, they're rightfully upset. And there there will probably be consequences on on this one. Before we get into the potential for an at-sea protest, so what do consultations look like if they're done to your organization's satisfaction? If the regulator, the CNLOPB, says ExxonMobil is in full compliance and they're allowed to do this by the current legislation and the regulatory body, what does consultation look like? Well, again, since 2015, we've met formally with, with, the, with the, uh, the bodies, with the, with the C. And LOPB, they've they've known our position on this. They've known it's it's uh, crap. We were meeting uh, as late as a couple of weeks ago on that same issue. So you know we've been pushing it for a long time. These so there was dialogue, but they just can't say to us, you know, that after 
uh, we make our uh, uh, to to the to the company. Uh, they ask for our input, and if it's not contemplated or incorporated into their plan, it's a waste of time. And and that's that's what the harvesters are are, are feeling right now, that we've completely wasting our time talking to this uh, this advocate, this vanguard for the oil industry, when they can plunk that uh, um, the Hercules down on on prime uh, crab grounds. So, you know, I have it here. I can send it to you. We got a lot of correspondence going back and forth outlining our position on that. It's not new, but what is new is, is this attitude that uh, there's no balance here and that they can, because it's the oil industry. And by the way, that committee is made up of representatives from federal, the federal government, and the provincial government. I thought somebody on, on the committee would have the sense to say, well, you know, this is crab grounds. We can push this off. It's the drilling proposals for less than 75 days. Did they have to do it in July? The, the answer is probably no. But, you know, coming out and saying, well, they meet all the requirements, they've ticked all the boxes, that's pretty insulting to harvesters. What, now this might sound like a stupid question, I'm going to ask it anyway. What realistically is the complications of the Hercules being on those crab grounds during crab season? Is it about where the crab will or will not be, or is there something more to it that people need to understand? Well, you know, it's not a stupid question because it's, it's pretty complicated. But to be fair, uh, where that brig is now, I'm looking at a chart right now provided by one of our harvesters uh, that he has pots that are directly in line uh, with, the, with, the, uh, with the Hercules. So the crab is out there. Uh, that area, there's safety uh, exclusion zones established around the rig. And they're, they're on the crab grounds. They're in the crab area. We would have to move pots. We'd have to move gear. We have to not fish in that area. And these are really productive uh, crab harvesting areas that they've intruded on. And we've asked him to do the right thing, but it, it, it doesn't, there's nothing sinking in here. Uh, so, you know, it, this is a problem. And But we are asking, Patty, to be fair, we are asking for them to, you know, to smarten up and start doing this thing uh, properly. I mean, we need to be a part of the process, not, not just ask us for input and then completely ignore it. We need to have a procedure in place where we are just as important as the oil industry. Now, God, I know, I know. I mean, they're darlings of the province, the oil companies, and they're darlings of the feds. But we're here, too, and we're there first. And they had to show, start showing better uh, communication styles and better respect for what people do for a living. Just imagine going out there 378 kilometers from St. John's and to find that when they could easily have done it in the fall and when the crab is, uh, is over. But, you know, there it is. Uh, they got the, they got the inside track and it shows. And I have no earthly idea about the timing issue, whether or not the oil company will say that it was the time with which they had access to the Hercules. I don't know, but I will follow up directly with the company on this after this call. Uh, a couple of quick ones before we get to the news, Greg. Sure. What percentage yeah. of the tack has been landed, to the best of your knowledge, of snow crab? Uh, it's, uh, it's a little over 70. Depends on which area you're in. Some as high as 90. Some, some of the... Uh, uh, areas in three three L are uh, pro- approximately ninety uh, percent, 
But overall, I think the average will be about uh, uh, mid-70s, I think. Oh, before I moved on to that, I wanted to ask you about the uh, potential for Nazi protest. What does that mean? I mean, what would you do at sea? And it certainly sounds pretty dangerous when people say a protest at sea, but what does it mean? And what's the possibility but, or but the likelihood know, of it? But, but once again, Patty, when you, you, you start to hit, whether you're a fish company or you're an oil company, when you hit harvesters in your pocketbook, you know there's a tradition and there's a reaction. And it, you know, it, it boggles the mind why, why they would plunk that down right in the middle of the crab season. So what would it look like? Mm-hmm. It would probably take on several forms, one at sea and, and, and uh, perhaps one on land. But it, it can't go unanswered. Well, we're not going to stand by and be pushed off the fishing grounds. I mean, nobody expects that to happen in this province. I, I, I expect, except some people who make some very foolish decisions uh, on harvesters' incomes. So are we talking about a fleet or an armada of 65 footers circling around the Hercules? What, what does it actually mean? Because, you know, some people's minds' eyes, you might see some Greenpeace stuff going after whaling boats, for instance, which always looked like a pretty dangerous piece of interaction. So when you say it, is that what we're talking about? Big group of 65 footers out around the Hercules? It, it could be that, but we're going to consult with the harvesters that are directly impacted by this first. And uh, we let you know. But, you know, you'll get plenty of notice. <laughs> oh, good. I, and I appreciate that. Well, you know, there was the thought that when the six-week standoff was done and the tie-up was left uh, left off and you moved out and people went fishing, there was no commitment necessarily to adjust the price-setting process, which is deeply flawed and everybody realized that. What's the status of the conversation, whether it be with the minister or the premier, about what it might look like next year or any changes that may or may not be coming? Okay, good one. Well, first of all, you know, after the six weeks, there, we had um, we had commitments on, as you know, on locking on the two twenty for the duration of the season. We also had, uh, very importantly, which a lot of people miss, is that we had a very rudimentary formula put in place, which has actually paid off uh, to harvesters based on increasing market conditions and currency. So that's there. Uh, the market increases. And uh, the crab continues to move very uh, successfully, I should say, uh, through the American market. So all of these things are positive. Uh, work in the plants uh, continuing. Uh, and um, m- many of the larger plants are in pretty good shape at this point in time. Some of the smaller ones are probably need some attention. So we're looking at that. But uh, t- to your specific point, uh, there is a commitment um, between ourselves and ASP to get cracking at this uh, uh, formula, to have a look at the FOS, to fine-tune that, if I can say that. Uh, it's, you know, harvesters are telling me, and I think they're right, that it's not working for them. And if we're going to continue with that, then it, it needs to be, there needs to be balance and equity. But I think the most important thing is that the province... Uh, as you know, uh, the province has indicated, and it makes no difference if you're talking to the Premier, the Department of Fisheries, or the Department of Labor, that all of us have a commitment to do a lot of work to either bring in a formula on, on crab uh, as early as this fall, barring the price, but the, the actual formula we can start working on, and look at a review of the FOS. So... There's complete agreement on that, and I would anticipate uh, that will start
start, that process will start early in September. Uh, break down the acronym of FOS for those who don't know. Oh, final offer selection. Right. Okay. So not to oversimplify, but it seems to me the market bears what the market bears. Is part of the solution here simply the percentage of the market price afforded to either side? Does that get us a long way down the road to a more manageable system? What, what gets us down the road to a manageable system is uh, a formula, particularly in this species, I mean crab, because it works in other species. You, you probably know, and I'm not going to drag you down on that one, but, but in crabs, what happened this year was that between the company's position and, and uh, the panel's position, um, by the way, McCurdy uh, dissented, as you probably know, uh, it downloaded all the hurt. Everything that was going uh, negatively in the market was downloaded on harvesters. We asked for a process. We asked for a formula where we could share, we could actually share with the companies the rises and falls of these markets once we could establish that. So that would go a long way. If the market is the market, you're right. I mean, we're not going to we're not going to argue with that. And, and in fact, uh, part of the problem this year was as we went through, as we prepared for the fishery, when we were in Boston, for example, at the seafood show, I think the, the market actually dropped a dollar. So, but once you have a, a, a system in place that that captures the rise and fall and distributes the the misery, if I can call it that, equally, then then we're we're off to a better system. But you know, Patty, you know, a two twenty price, uh, a crab price of uh, market crab price of uh, five forty. I mean that's uh, that's an absolute uh, failure. As a, uh, but there's, you know there has to be a better way uh, to ride out these uh, market concerns, and I think the formula is the way to go. Very quickly before I get to the news, uh, summer shrimp ninety two cents a pound. Is there a written decision? Is there a written decision? Yeah. On on the fall or spring? On the summer on the summer shrimp. Uh, yes, I think there is. Yes. Okay, because I was looking for it, I couldn't find it. I appreciate the time this morning, Greg. Thanks for this. Patty, anytime. Thanks very much, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. Greg Pretty is the president of the FFAW. Time for the news. When we come back, there's a caller that wants to talk about mental health care. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Nicholas, you're on the air. Uh, hello, I'm Nicholas Stagg from Catalana. Uh, in regards to mental health going uh, going on with my mother, um, she's been dealing with this since uh, 1984, longer than I've been alive. <laughs> but uh, she was admitted May 2nd to the Waterford Hospital because uh, she went to the doctor in uh, Bonavista, her uh, home care, our home doctor, and. Uh, he sent her to Clarenville because uh, she had a lot of fluid on her feet. And mom takes a lot of strong medication. And they had her in Clarenville and uh, taking the fluid and that around her heart and everything. And uh, they were giving her medication and wasn't checking to see what was what she was allowed to take with her actual medication. So then that fooled up her nerves and she started to, her nerves started to get bad again. So she... She was the one who told the doctor that she wanted to go to the Waterford. So she got to the Waterford, and uh, she wasn't she wasn't there a week. And the doctor discharged her, and he told she told him that she she wasn't ready to come home. And he pretty much said to her that um, 
you either go home or you're going getting sent back to Carnival. He said, you're not staying here. And she come home. She was home a week. And uh, she wanted to go back over to the Bonavista Hospital. And they sent her back to, to St. John's, Waterford. She went on another unit. And um, same time, uh, about 3 o'clock in the morning, I got video on my phone of the nurse. Uh, throwing down her cane, telling her to walk on her own, telling her if you can get up to call your daughter, then you can get up to use the bathroom. Um, I got a picture on my phone of how they uh, gave her her uh, dinner that day. Uh, it was about, it was, she was sat down on the chair and uh, her bed was about three or four feet away from her. And they told her to eat like that and wasn't, wouldn't move the bed or wouldn't move her or whatever. Uh, a patient in the Waterford had to move the bed uh, towards my mother so she could eat her breakfast. Um, the nurse swore on her, uh, said, said all this stuff, I have it all on video. And she come back home after, no, she, uh, she, after the incident with the nurse, she got sent to the Health Science Center, the psychiatric ward in, in Health Science, and uh, they uh, she was in there for about a week, and the doctor was the same thing. He didn't think that there was anything wrong with her. He never tried to do anything with her, with her medication. After her, she telling him that her medication is not right or is too strong, or like she knows if she's not right or not. So he let her come home. He, at first, he wanted her to come home. He was going to discharge her. So, but uh, I told him, "Can you at least give her a weekend pass?" So she come home on, for a weekend. She uh, she wasn't herself, but I mean, she was a lot better than what she was. But she was home, but she was still saying she wanted to do stuff for herself. She wanted, you know, you know, and Monday come, and he never even phoned a discharger. He got a nurse to do it. And I've seen that as that's not very professional. I mean, to get a nurse to do your do the job you're you're supposed to be doing. So she was home then for two weeks, and Saturday this Saturday passed. She was still saying still saying that she wanted to do stuff for herself. And so we brought her back to the Bonavista Hospital. And she got in there Sunday morning. They wouldn't admit her. And now um, she's on the way back home again. They wouldn't... The doctor wouldn't even speak to me this morning. He wouldn't even... No one would speak to me about getting her to stay in there. So now she's on the way back home now in the ambulance. And I'm worried myself and so is everyone else of... I go to work for ten hours a day, and she, she does have home care, but it's not just not a lot of hours. And um, it, just first uh, before I have to say goodbye, Nicholas, is this the case where we are told that? And not only the confusion about whether or not she should be discharged, she says she's not ready to be discharged, but has she been told that she's faking the symptoms, looking for attention? Is this the story? Pretty much, yeah. The doctor told her that uh, there's nothing wrong with you, and uh, um, and he and then she cried and everything in front of him. I know when she's if she was faking it or if she wasn't. You know what I mean? 
I'm I'm 21 myself, and I've I've been dealing with it all my life, so. I'm not sure what to say about it because it seems quite odd to me that there would have at one point been a formal diagnosis of something that doesn't cure itself and then consequently years later to be told that you're faking it. I guess that person would just be declaring, uh, well, it sort of sounds like they're declaring that the original diagnosis is inaccurate, but sort of a strange set of circumstances. Would you like to say anything else quickly, Nicholas, before I have to take another call? Uh, I just hope that something has, can be done. I mean, because if something does happen to her, well, what's going to happen then? That's a fair question, and that's the worst-case scenario, which I hope, obviously, I hope does not happen. Yeah, I appreciate the time right. this morning. I wish you well. Keep me in the loop. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. You too. Oops, sorry. And, you know, the comment made by somebody since we've heard these types of stories is, you know, whether even we bring it back to the towards recovery document. But some of the places where government says they've made advancements, and it's, you can't deny it, whether it be infrastructure, Happy Valley Goose Bay, and, of course, the new mental health and addictions facility being built here on the health sciences complex. That provides new modern surroundings. It doesn't mean that these types of things change, though. So it's fine to have new modern buildings, and they were absolutely required. So whether it be about staffing levels and or the delivery model itself, that needs to change as much as we have new, modern, happy, healthy, dignified surroundings, which are woefully absent at the Waterford, for instance. Uh, Let's go ahead and take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Geraldine, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Okay, thank you. How are you? I'm fine. Well, I'm struggling, still struggling. Remember I phoned you last, uh, I think it was November or something, I was homeless. Remember, I, had, I was end up staying in my car. I think I remember that. Yes. Yeah, uh, they put me in uh, Ramana in for two weeks. I came out of that. They put me down in the forty-six Hazel Ward for six months. People came and went, and everybody was getting a place, but not me. I wasn't getting nothing. And two, two, three weeks ago, they took me out of that and put me in, in Ramana in again for two weeks. I said to them, "So where am I going at now?" You have nowhere to go. You will have to go back in your car. I, I phoned MHA, like the secretary. He's trying to do everything. And, uh, like, they thought I had a place. And I said, no, I'm after trying everything. I tried for things for myself. And so I went down to see the, uh, the housing. They wanted to see me. And they actually came out and said, there's actually nothing there they can give me. So you're telling me you have nothing to give me. Now, so where do you expect me to go? Out in my car. Geraldine, before we get into today's circumstance, how was it that you became homeless in the first place? Uh, My house burnt down, and I was uh, renting over there. I was working, but then uh, when my job became redundant, I was was laid off, but I never had enough money to pay rent. Okay. So then I hooked up to the seniors' connections, and then I put in for housing because I got a bad knee, like in mental illness and stuff. And they applied all that. I was on a waiting list into the the housing. But according to them, I said, you can give it to everybody else. Why not me? I You don't even have to give me a spoon. I got everything packed up, I said, and ready to go. I got all my, my stuff packed in a, in a you know, a, a shed, a brush. I said, I, I can't believe that. I can't live on the road. I'm 70 years old. 
It certainly doesn't sound very healthy. And so where do you actually stay in your car? Do you move it around parking lots? I, or move, do you... I move it around and I got I got a couple of people that I go there like and wash my clothes and uh, I can get a shower and stuff like that. Isn't it? I can't say no, it's not bad in the car because it's, it's warm, but it's going to get cold. Like I shouldn't long. have to stay in the car. There's got to be something out there that they can, can give me. There's no need of it. I know. No it. I know that there is a long list of people waiting to get into Newfoundland Labrador housing. But add to it just how many of the housing units are boarded up and haven't had the renovations or whatever repairs done. That's what further complicates it. Yeah, look, they're not they're not do, doing anything. And I was told by MHA, uh, Bill on they were saying he said it's a couple coming up in June, in June, in July, in. In June, he said, "Yeah, most likely you'll get one of them." Nothing. So I, I'm right back to, to part A again. I never, I never moved. I'm still living in the car. I had ended up throwing out most of my clothes when I left Hazelwood because I had nowhere to put it. I, I, I got like, I got the, the little bit of clothes that got on my back and this, and and, it, and and it's shameful. I said, well, you, phone, you phone them, and uh, they say, yes, I'm on the priority list. But then she told me the other day, I have nothing for you. For you. Well, can you get me a two? If you don't want to get me a one uh, one apartment building, get me two, and then I'll take in a border. Like, get me something that I can say, I can, you know, I can call uh, I can call home and say I can live there. But she actually came out Thursday and said, I actually don't have nothing for you. So I said, if I live in a car and something happens, I'll be on your head. I hope that nothing happens. It not only sounds like a terrible situation to find yourself in, it also sounds a bit unsafe to me. Yeah, uh, it is unsafe. It, it, sound, it sounds, yeah. It's not, it's not healthy because I'm after having a lot of, I'm after being into the, like I became sick, so I ended up uh, in the health science for a week. So, uh, and I said, sure, I had to go. I said, like, my health problems are starting to bother me because I'm not, I'm not, of course, you're not eating well because you're in a car. Yeah, everything so about I, it sounds I terrible. Don't know what else? The uh, MHA Secretary, like, for Dave Brazel is doing her best. And, like I said, but I'm, uh, they're, they're saying they don't have nothing. You've got to have something. Now, they did give me something a couple of weeks ago. I had to go down on. Um, Prince of Wales Street, but I can't climb the stairs. Like there's twelve or fourteen stairs to go upstairs. I said I'm sorry, but I said I I, I can't uh, I can't climb up there. I said I'm lucky to get out in one or two steps. So like I have all my papers sent out, and like I was in Hazelwood, and they would take people in for two or three days, probably two weeks, and they get a place to live. I'm the only one that didn't get. I was the last one there from all the crowd that was there that didn't get a place. They put me up in here in Ramada in them for two weeks. I said, I, I found the housing, the emerging housing, and she said, we have nowhere to put you. Well, I hope that changes soon, Geraldine. I appreciate the update, as sad as it is this morning. You take care of yourself. Know, Stay yeah. in touch. So, so I said, uh, I'll phone me, and I said, okay. uh, tell Paddy, Paddy Daly and just see what he thinks. I said, but I don't know. I've tried all the tricks of the trade, and there's, there's a, people, a lot of people in the government that's helping me. But apparently the housing is saying they got nothing for me. I wish that was different. Geraldine, stay in touch. Let yeah. me know how you're doing. Okay, okay, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, last word this morning goes to line number three. Say good morning to the Director of Marketing, Special Events, and the Media Relations Manager at Downtown St. John's is Galen Gulliver. Good morning, Galen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much. I hope your summer is going well. So far, so good. Looking forward to a bit of time off, but, you know, the weather is cooperating these days, so all good. How about your summer? Oh, it's been going great, and I'm calling because it's also been going great downtown. It's the... You know, yourself, you find some time off or some other people or any some, any tourists out there listening. We have uh, lots happening downtown. Would I like to talk to you about briefly, if that's okay? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, right up tonight, we have Real Downtown. So our, our annual uh, outdoor movie uh, screening series that happens every Monday, um, weather permitting, downtown St. John's. It's in the same place it's always happened, which is in a parking lot at the bottom of Solomon's Lane. So look for the big screen. And that starts uh, tonight at 9 o'clock, and it's free admission. But if people want to uh, come down a bit earlier with their chairs, they certainly can come down and get your favorite spot. And this year we've added free parking at Atlantic Place Parking Garage for all of our uh, real downtown goers. So you can come in any time after 6 to, uh, you know, when the movie is over and park for free in Atlantic Place. So that's just a short jaunt. So we have those... uh, Space is available for people. Of course, we have our listening devices there for anybody from provided by the Canadian Heart and Hearing Association. So, Top Gun Maverick tonight, and that will continue for every Monday, weather permitting, for the rest of July. So that's a great thing. And if movies don't tickle your fancy, there's lots that we're doing downtown. Of course, we've got Shakespeare by the Sea happening downtown. Hold Fast Arts Festival is coming up in August. Iceberg Gallery um, Arts Festival that's also coming up in August. George Street is starting and, and 101 other things. And if people are looking for interesting things to do in their time off, uh, for the summer, check our website at downtownstjohns.com. And Patty, we're hoping to see you. I get down every now and then. Uh, so Top Gun Maverick, first off, visually very entertaining movie. Uh, I'll put that out there. With the pedestrian mall, I've been down for a couple of strolls and a couple of bites. What's in the works? I know there's big confusion and some uh, spats between the business owners on uh, Duckworth versus Water and some arguments with the city, what have you. But let me just start with saying, I love it. I love the pedestrian mall. I think it's a great idea. But what are we working on to spice it up a little bit, jazz it up, a bit more entertainment in the street, as simply as opposed to uh, tables and chairs and opportunity to eat al fresco? Yes, absolutely. And of course, that's that's a lovely experience. Of course, in itself, the city is the pedestrian mall is an event that's run by the city of St. John's, and they have quite a schedule of entertainment. A lot of it happens on the weekends, so people could visit the, the What's Happening arm of the city of St. John's, or of course, go on to the city, uh, you know, uh, socials and websites themselves, and they'll be able to find out all the things that the city has planned. They've had pop-ups, they've had music, they've had, you know, uh, little plays, and, and of course, you know, all of that sort of stuff that they uh, organize that happens within the pedestrian mall. But I guess... You know, that's a big animal, of course, in itself, and that evolves and changes and gets better every year. But let's not forget that there's other things to do outside of downtown. We have, you know, great things that are happening up on Duckworth Street. There's awesome shops and restaurants up there, not just Duckworth Street, but any other place outside the pedestrian mall. You know, one thing about about the mall is it is um, it does bring people downtown. And, you know, when you get down, uh, we've placed some really interesting, nice new signage around, and it shows people different businesses and uh, locations of landmarks and so on and so forth that they can investigate and enjoy all throughout the downtown. So, uh, you know, 
if pedestrian mall is not your thing, if you know, there's other things that people can do certainly to enjoy uh, the area. Yeah, and I know it's not your ballywick, but the entirety of the downtown just needs a reinjection of a variety of things, including some more tenants. I know it's really not that much different than it has been in years past, but there's just always so much potential downtown, and hopefully we can really? find a way to uh, grab it all or to seize it all. Galen, I appreciate the time. You've had the last word this morning. See you downtown. See you there, Patty. Thank okay. you. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. Galen Gulliver, Marketing Special Events and Media Relations Manager with Downtown St. John's. All right, good show today, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.